Hey everybody, on this episode we are discussing 1989's The Abyss. As always, we do recommend that you watch the movie ahead of time. Uh, That does usually make the discussion more interesting to follow. So John, what is The Abyss about? Well Mike, let me invite you to a world of cold darkness and unrelenting pressure. That is a James Cameron movie set. Experience the terror, the drama, the intensity of one humble film crew going up against life or death situations on a daily basis. Witness esteemed actors pushed to the brink of collapse as they try desperately to figure out how they got into such a situation and how they can possibly get out of it. Take part in the psychological torture of mounting studio expectations and budget constraints, all set in a world where time slips away as days slide into months, which slide into years. And finally, feel the overwhelming relief when the Sisyphean nightmare is finally over and, against all odds, a tremendously successful film is pulled from the wreckage of your traumatic experiences. There is truly nothing like a James Cameron film set. That's that's just what you know, ha- that's just what happened. I was John. gonna say the, the funny part is these intros are usually jokes, but this is actually pretty accurate. Yeah, it's like, this is kind of one to one with this movie. My favorite part uh, about the Abyss documentary yeah. is the actors trying to convince themselves that this was worth it. <laughs> you can just yeah. like tell that they're not. They don't believe. Liter- it. literally like Stockholm syndrome yeah, kind of great. moments. We'll get into that. Uh, welcome to this film, Kabir Life. again to this home to be your life my name is jonathan divine i'm joined as always by mike overstreet am i supposed to say hello yeah that's where you say hello why are hello. we still why, why are we still having i'm just gonna keep going i'm, I'm done I'm, I'm, I'm just moving as always this is a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously as we have covered we are talking about 1989's the abyss Written and directed by James Cameron. It was produced by Gail Ann Hurd. The cinematography was by Michael Solomon. The cinematography in this movie, by the way, is no small feat since so much of it is underwater, as we will get to over the course of this discussion. It was edited by Conrad Buff IV. That's a great name. That is a good Joel name. Goodman and Howard Smith. And the music was by <laughs> legendary Alan Silvestri, who, by the way, is also the uh, composer behind Back to the Future, Avengers Endgame, a lot of really really uh big movies over the years the movie stars ed harris mary elizabeth master antonio and michael bean among quite a few others it follows the efforts of a actually i don't agree with this description that i pulled from wikipedia because it says it follows the efforts of a u.s seal team i would say it follows the efforts of the oil rig civilians but yeah, whatever the crew from Ty- uh, uh, armageddon yeah, Back it follows it. basically the Armageddon crew. It follows the U.S. SEAL team inserted into a civilian experimental underwater oil rig to salvage a nuclear submarine that sank after an encounter with an unknown underwater presence. Before long, they all find themselves trapped underwater in the Cayman Trough and their communications with the surface cut off while a hurricane rages above them. As tension mounts and tempers flare in the tight quarters, they discover that they are not alone in the Cayman Trough. Something unknown and inhuman 
is watching them. Mm. As we have alluded to a lot, this was an incredibly, incredibly crazy film experience. Uh, sorry, sorry, filming experience. The process of making this movie. Um, it features an extensive amount of underwater filmography that was really, really groundbreaking. Um, and kind of still is. We'll get into this, but there really aren't many movies even afterwards that are made that look like this movie. I wonder why. Um, I wonder why. Uh, in fact, sorry, this quote that I pulled uh, from TV Tropes, which is a website kind of uh, just talking about pop, pop, excuse me, popular culture, states this might forever hold the record for the most technically complex movie ever made. Cameron crew members and cast members had to become dive certified since the since much of the filming took place in a set built inside and under the surface of a flooded, partially built nuclear reactor containment vessel. <sighs> um, and then it goes on. Cameron spent so much time underwater that he had to spend time in decompression chambers viewing dailies while hanging upside down in the pressure tank. The FX shots included uh, models, green screens, cutting, literally groundbreaking cutting edge CGI, all of this stuff. Um, it was just crazy. Like we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more, but the, the production of this movie was crazy. And in the end, it was only a partially successful movie. It made about $90 million against a $40 million budget, uh, which is pretty good, but is also by far the worst, uh, or the, the worst, um, financial, financially performing movie in Cameron's entire repertoire. He's normally obviously has these incredibly over the top successes, so this movie sits in a kind of weird spot in that canon. Having said that, um, a lot of sci-fi nerds like me and Mike, I, I guess I'm going to guess with Mike a little bit, but we start by talking about our history with the movie and with the director. Um, I got to this movie a little late compared to other Cameron movies, mm. but basically from the first time I saw it, uh, probably six or seven years ago, I was totally in love. I, I actually... In, in a weird way, this might even be my favorite James Cameron movie. Not like, not literally. Like, like if you ask me what his best movie is, it, it, I wouldn't say this. But in terms of which one I find I, I enjoy watching the most, I think, or the one that feels most made for me, mm. for the like geeky sci-fi nerd who kind of just wants to watch James Cameron make his version of 2001 in terms of like visual scope and and all of these insane things kind of coming together, um, this might be it. And and it just sits in this really interesting space where I just really I, I cut it a lot of slack because we're gonna get into there. There are a lot of issues with this movie, um, but I find I actually have a lot of affection for it. Um, what are your thoughts, Mike? What are your thoughts on just the movie in general and or your kind of history with it? Well, I feel like the first thing is that we have to acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is that if the sound quality sounds off, it's because we are recording this 100 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, yeah. We yeah. created that, as, you know, entirely new podcast gear that works underwater. Um, Aquaman is here, and yeah. it is truly a spectacle to behold. Um, no, I... I um, I saw this movie really young. This actually might have been the first or second James Cameron movie I saw. That's not true. Aliens is the first for sure. Um, for reasons. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I think you already had said that on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is probably the second. And again, it's one of those examples where my dad just like loved the science fiction genre. 
So this is a movie that geeked him out and he showed it to us. And unlike those other films, this one isn't really objectionable in any real way. <laughs> it didn't give me nightmares. It's uh, quite a lovely story. I, I can tell you that the first time I saw it, I did not understand it at all. Like, I, I just had yeah. like, no concept of what was going on. Um, rewatching it, you know, since, especially rewatching the original cut, I'm not sure that's all on me as a child. But yeah, I do think I, I really enjoyed it because I think the visuals of it, even though I didn't understand the plot, are just so unbelievably stunning. Um, and it's just such a, a fascinating movie in terms of like a, a naturally set film. So, yeah, I've always enjoyed it. It's I will say this is one of the hardest movies to find in Cameron's filmography. Oh, my God. Which is yeah. so strange in a lot of ways. The director's yeah. cut is literally something you have to, like, buy a hard copy of these days, uh, assuming you're not going to break the law and just torrent it. So which who would do that? Yeah, that no would one be, would do that. So. That would be crazy if someone would do that. Of course, if someone had done that, having bought the movie in another medium, I would say there's an argument that they're okay. <laughs> Again, because it's so inaccessible to get the director's cut. But, but that's yeah. just this is all a hypothetical. But it's it's even like hard to get as a the original. It, you know, I I had to get a seven day free subscription to Stars to watch the original version, and I definitely don't know how I got the uh, director's cut. Anyway, um, it, so yeah, it, it's one of those movies that I don't return to because it's just like not present it, it's it's very rare that i uh think to return to it and actually the couple times that i have i have not been able to really find it um on any of the streaming platforms which is a bummer because i do think it's yeah. one of his more interesting films even if it's not necessarily one of his most cohesive films right yeah and you know we, we we've made reference to it now a couple times so we should just mention explicitly so one of the interesting things with this movie is that uh, there's a director's cut version, and normally director's cuts, I, I'm kind of take it or leave it with those. Uh, it, you know, there's certain directors that really need it. Almost every Ridley Scott movie is better in the director's cut versus the theatrical cuts. Um, as far as I know, there's no other Cameron movie quite like this one where the theatrical cut is so uh, heavily cut. It has so many stark differences to the extended cut that it it virtually changes the entire like thematic tone of the movie yeah, i think yeah 100% um yeah. which we'll we'll get into that um but you but briefly just to say you are correct mike that it is very hard to find um and i think that's a little bit of a shame i i think it's also largely because thinking of his filmography this is probably tied with true lies in terms of least lasting cultural impact yeah otherwise you know terminator terminator 2 aliens titanic obviously huge movies you can find them everywhere uh this one gets kind of for a little bit forgotten and again true lies a little bit too uh which is a shame if you get a chance high recommendation uh, obviously we're going to talk about it a little bit more um but yeah one last thing i just want to say real quick mike said offhand that this movie did not give him nightmares in comparison to aliens I just want to register. Uh, in fact, this was a, a stray thought I had that I want to just go ahead and bring up front. Uh, this movie is, in fact, my waking nightmare. Yeah, uh, sure. I have something called thalassophobia, uh, which is fear of, like, deep water, essentially, and, mm. and you know, just the ocean. And, uh, yeah, as much as I – there's a part of me that is fascinated by that, which is why I love this movie, and I actually watch, like, documentaries about sea monsters and stuff as a kid. Like, 
that combine like deep horror with fascination. I think I felt that. Um, so I love this movie because of that. But there's also a few scenes here that absolutely, maybe not literally gave me nightmares, but absolutely are the, the, the stuff of my deepest, darkest fears. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So no yeah, one can hear you scream we will, when your lungs are full no, of water. Yeah, zero percent approval rating on uh going through the the abandoned submarine or the the sunken submarine um we will get to that scene and actually we'll get to it probably pretty quick here uh because i think we're good to go let's do it uh so the way we divide this podcast we have a few different sections of how we talk about the movie we're going to start with why the movie works kind of outlining just things that we think are are really exceptional really successful then we have a section of what maybe holds the movie back, things that don't work so well. Uh, later on, we'll have some stray thoughts. And then later, later on, we each have prepared, excuse me, we each have prepared an essay, kind of diving deep into some aspect of the film. Uh, but first, we'll start with what is good about this movie and what makes this movie work. Um, it's tough to know where to start, but I think the obvious thing would be the visuals of the movie. Yeah. And in a weird way, I feel like it's a disservice to the cr- the, the the crew and the production effort of the movie to start anywhere else. Those who because lost as their much lives as at the hands to of those who, no one, If anyone's wondering, <laughs> no one actually died. Let's just get that out. Um, but it is a little staggering that no one died because yeah. it is just... It is such a monumental effort because essentially you're watching this this idea of a again an underwater oil rig, which to be clear doesn't exist, but it's an interesting idea that you would have an oil rig, you know, at the base of the ocean, um, moving to where you would get oil from. That part's apparently not very realistic because there's no need to move to, you know, a single rig to another spot for more oil. But at any rate, it's an interesting premise, and when it comes to filming it, they made this in 1989. For the most part, they kind of just did that. They obviously didn't go to the real ocean, but they did build a giant one-to-one set, as we said, in a abandoned nuclear facility. Um, And yeah, they flooded an abandoned nuclear reactor that had been, it was unfinished actually, and just built a set in there and then shot like hours and hours of, of footage underwater um with real actors doing things and, and and not only like real actors just kind of going around in dive suits they have to have those actors in um hard hat diving which is so we can see their faces and stuff but that's apparently exceptionally more difficult than scuba diving and then they also have a lot of scenes that are very harrowing that involve those actors for example without uh breathing apparatuses and things like that um and you're just left constantly. Mike and I both watched the making of this movie, which you can find on YouTube. Uh, but it just becomes apparent real quick just to what staggering lengths they went to, to to make all of this footage. So again, I just want to start with the fact that that footage is incredible. Yeah. And it is truly unlike anything you'll see in any other movie because they wouldn't even make it this way now. They would use a lot of CGI. They would use a lot of computer imagery to basically make this a lot easier and cheaper. Um, I was just, I'm just in a constant state of all when I watch the movie where I just, I just keep telling myself over and over, man, they actually built this for the most part. Like that's a real thing that I'm looking at. There's exceptions like, you know, the submarine is, is uh, or excuse me, the nuclear submarine is, is uh, you know, a miniature and stuff like that. But 
But for the most part, when you're looking at stuff underwater with humans there, it's like, no, that just exists. They just made that and did it. And it's it's really staggering. And I would say really effective. The, yeah. the oppressiveness of being trapped miles underwater, you really feel that. Like, like I'm completely bought in as I watch this movie. Uh, Mike, what do you have? Visuals, kind of overall, you know, uh, underwater filmography. Yeah, I mean, we we gush at the the auteur's abilities, uh, especially this generation of directors, to like successfully blend practical effects and CGI. This is kind of the sweet spot um, in terms of time periods where people weren't just going full blown CGI, and this is truly the most astounding example of that. You know, it is yeah. the most. It is the movie that you would expect to have a ton of CGI and then practical effects sprinkled in to kind of smooth it out. And this is the other way around. Like the CGI, yeah, sure, the aliens are CGI, stuff like that. But so much of this movie is practical effects with CGI is like rounding the edges. And and when you, I, I guess I don't have much to ask other than to say like actually think about everything that John just said. They took a nuclear reactor like system, <laughs> filled it with water, covered the top of that with black beads so no light can get in to literally create the effect of like deep ocean and yeah that's insane there's all sorts of crazy stories like when you're creating new dive gear to make a movie one creating new technology for a movie already bonkers when you have people like getting their hair burned off by chlorinated tanks of water (laughs) i mean when you're and you talked about not making it again today yeah because they started filling the tank before they had finished like making sure it was safe so there's like a ton of stuff that wouldn't work however in the movie it is so profoundly (laughs) epic when you're like oh this looks like you're x number of miles beneath the water because they literally physically created that visual in terms of cutting off light and how they created tarps and how they what cameras they brought in and and every single thing was considered by this absolute psychopath named james cameron (laughs) but then put into effect i mean flawlessly which is even more crazy when you hear about the problems they had because they were problem solving as they go and and the outcome is just a movie that is i I mean a, a real to life imaging of what it would be look like to meet aliens under the ocean, which is yeah crazy to say out loud. Um, and it's a feat. And especially I mean, from 1989, we keep saying, like, yeah. like to, if you, you know, to make that today is not quite chump change, but it's, it's certainly much easier, but they, they just did that before yeah. they have computers making all these things. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, it, oh, one, one yeah. last visual point. Cause the other cool part about that is that it also, overemphasizes in a positive way it like accentuates when they do bring in cgi created otherworldly elements so like when the when you're in this like dark claustrophobic space and it's utter blackness and then that wild looking stingray-esque like translucent neon glowing alien shows up it creates such a popping contrast that it, it, it it creates awe and wonder like almost in and of itself because they've done such a good job of setting the the darkness of the surrounding world so yeah it's both really cool i mean i i will find myself gushing about the ocean element of this movie but it it does do some really cool things when like these extraterrestrial beings show up too because it just creates such a unique contrast that you're just not going to get in other sci-fi movies and it feels so real or it looks so real and so 
like vibrant in some really really cool shots yeah absolutely quick uh quick correction i don't, I don't know if you perp or i don't know if you realize that you said this wrong or if you don't know this oh he, but he, the, cr- he created in- aliens he like bio he created aliens yeah bio- engineered no, aliens. Uh, <laughs> the the ntis so those like alien stingray things that those are actually not cgi whoa um yeah those are practical effects which is even more bonkers they're like yeah. miniatures on sort of you know um almost like puppets underwater uh, I was even going to mention with those specifically, and that's a good segue because I wanted to talk about the other side of the visuals, so not the underwater cinematography, but the um, visual effects and the interior like kind of set stuff. Because the interior of the oil rig is just sort of a normal set, uh, but it looks incredible. I just wanted to call attention to that. It's very. Sure. I, I, kept, I found myself thinking of Alien a lot. Mm, um, yeah, because yeah. that same sort of claustrophobic, you know, in that case, it's a space station. In this case, it's an oil rig. But it's actually a very similar vibe. You're sort of cut off from the the world. You are there's a sort of a pressure. There's a, a you know, a, a danger to going outside of your enclosed little space. Um, and then separately, yeah, the, the visual effects in general. Uh, it's interesting because what people will talk about with this movie, the, the, the thing that's famous about this movie is that tentacle water thing. And, and that will come up all the time when you look up stuff about this movie. That is the second ever CGI fully computer generated image, um, like character sort of thing on mm. screen. So computers have been replacing backgrounds and stuff, but for just like an image within an otherwise real shot, that's the second ever and by far the most like the first like big version of that. Um, the other one was, I think, from the young. Ooh, what was it? Young Sherlock Holmes, which is not a movie that anyone remembers. For ah, classic. Um, classic. Right. Also uh, filmed in a nuclear reactor. What's interesting about that water tentacle, by the way, is that it was so cutting edge and groundbreaking that they actually uh, and I, I guess I'm stepping on the toes of straight thoughts, but. They actually, he wrote that scene in such a way that you could completely cut it out and the plot wouldn't be affected because they weren't sure if they were going to be able to pull it off. Mm. They they didn't want to make it like a critical to the plot scene because if it didn't work, he had to be able to scrap it and the movie keep going. That is um, fascinating. That's cool. But again, having said that, it's funny because that effect is cool, but things like those NTIs and a lot, the practical effects to me are what actually has aged like in a sense better and like, oh, like has, for sure. it looks so interesting looking at now um so yeah just just visually over you know this is one of the masters going almost not maybe not as hard as he would ever go uh which is kind of a insane sentence to say but arguably titanic is a little bit more intense because he did kind of remake the ship uh which is you know its own scale of bonkers we'll get to titanic eventually on the show i'm sure um, but yeah, it's just, it's visually just an arresting movie to look at. Uh, Mike, what do you got? Well, I throw it to you. Uh, well, what, yeah, what I, do you think is the I reason why this movie works? a pretty easy, natural segue. Cause you had mentioned the, the comp to alien and I'm going to talk about this pretty much at length in my monologue. So I, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the choice to set this kind of a science fiction movie in the ocean is really thrilling. And yeah. one of the, one of the things I always come back to when I watch this movie is that comparison to alien, because it's kind of, it's kind of unbelievable 
that he is able to make us feel like a trip into like something that we all play in as kids, the ocean. He's able to make us feel like it's the same as going into space. And yeah. And there's just like a, a mastercraft to how he crafts some pretty standard sci-fi elements out of something that we so often treat as like a known quantity, right? Or a known environment. Yeah. And he truly makes it feel just as dangerous as like a ship breaking down uh, in the midst of like space travel between stars, right? Um, mm. I, I think he does some really awesome sci-fi elements with that especially as it relates to the ocean, you already talked about that, like pretty epic use of contrast between claustrophobia and then like the vastness of the ocean that surrounds them. Mm -hmm. So he, he really does create that very standard sci-fi element of like the outside is dangerous and trying to come in. And if it does, everyone in here is going to die, which just raises the stakes of all the crew that are in this like kind of hot box environment. I think that's one of the strengths of this movie um, just that that claustrophobia kind of radiates in the insanity of pretty much everyone involved. Um, but he also like takes some pretty cool elements that like wouldn't appear in kind of a space set sci-fi. Like I love the dynamic in this movie between the surface and then how it impacts what's going on below. Right. You get these yeah. really cool set pieces of like when the rig begins to get by the storm and it starts pulling the wire and it shows you the insanity mm. of as like basically the entire uh, underwater oil rig gets like torn apart essentially and obviously that aligns that smaller story with the larger themes that are going on about you know whatever we do on the surface has like a direct impact on our survival as like a species and yada 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 but but yeah i mean ultimately i'm always just stunned by how effective he is at making like a classic sci-fi movie set in something that seems so uh, like assumed for us as in the ocean yeah and it's so weird because, well, possibly for obvious reasons, it's weird to me that no one's ever done it since. Yeah. That well, this is well. not like a, because it, it seems like, because I had that point too. I wrote like just an incredible sci-fi premise, underwater is as alien as space, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there are a lot of comparisons with the original Alien, by the way. Undersea oil rig, nice mixture of working class people in a visually stunning setting, all of this stuff, right? Um, so that, that's all great. It's so interesting, again, that no one has capitalized on that since. I think that I am as interested, purely because of this one movie, I am as interested in the idea of, again, these kind of sci-fi ideas set in an environment like, you know, deep ocean as compared with space. I think it's, it's exactly as riveting. It has all of the same recipe for drama and adventure and whatever, um, and yeah, no one ever takes advantage of it. So I'm I'm sad about that, but it's nice that we have this movie because it is an incredible kind of version of that. Yeah. Um, and when you kind yeah. of, to be fair, I kind of, I get it. I get shooting underwater is harder than like creating a, a CGI space outside, right? Yeah. Um, this is just harder to do if you're going to actually do it. Um, but like you said, it creates a lot of like the cool things that we love about those kind of movies. The, you know the horror you already mentioned your terror of deep sea and drowning. But like there is one of the things that makes like a space horror sci-fi movie like aliens. So jarring is like those contrast points with like how our world works and then how things play out in this alien setting. And that's all here. Mm -hmm. Like when someone is dying and it's utter silence, that is jarring. Right. Oh. 
when you yeah. have the horror of someone drowning and they're screaming and yet all you hear is bubbles like what that is fundamentally doing is the exact same thing that you're going to get from a movie like alien where they're using the the absolute silence of space to create these really unbelievably kind of terrifying moments of just direct contrast to what you expect from what your eyes are seeing and what you're hearing right so yeah. in one hand I, I i'm trying to say is i agree with you it's a perfect setting for these tools to be employed in and i wish more people would do it on the other hand i i get that it's kind of um it's a lot easier to do it to set it in space as strange as that is because you're not actually ever going to send someone into space to make a movie um, they yep. actually had to send people underwater to make this look right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's insane. Um, I want to talk a little bit. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I should start by talking about the actors or if I should start by talking about how emotional some of the scenes are. Cause they're kind of hand in hand. This, this, in fact, I, I would say this is, in a weird spot for me in Cameron's filmography, yeah. we're going to get into a lot of ways that this movie doesn't necessarily totally succeed, but there are one or two scenes I could extract from this movie that frankly have like bet more pathos and more emotional intensity than almost anything else I can peg from his entire filmography. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd agree, Mike, but yeah, I, I, I want to, yeah. and, and those largely go to the actors. So I think let's maybe start with those scenes and then we'll segue into the actors pretty easily. Um, but I just want to start with the scene where uh, Ed Harris is. Revi- so, so Bud, Ed Harris character is reviving his sort of estranged wife, um, um, Elizabeth. Um, and she is, you know, she's essentially drowned herself and gone into catatonic shock and a desperate bid to be able to survive as, as backwards as it sounds. So they're trying to revive her. I want to start with like, that is a, this is such an in, crazily intense scene, right? Um, mm. It goes on. I don't know if you agree, Mike, but every time I watch this movie, that scene goes on way longer than I think it will. Yeah. Because he, they go through the process of trying to revive her. They actually give up. And then Harris basically, um, Harris's character kind of just defiantly is like, no, I'm going to keep trying to revive her. And that goes on for a minute, for what feels like an eternity and then she finally starts coughing and starts coming back. And there's so much tied into that scene, uh, again, of their emotional relationship between the two characters, of just the sort of intensity of the entire situation they're in. Because basically from this, you know, from the second act on, they've been fighting for their lives the whole time. And I don't know. It's just it's such an emotionally affecting scene when he because because Harris gives us a performance where like. By the time she revives, he is just in tears. And Ed Harris is one of my favorite actors. And when he, I think he really, really sells that. I, I, I think the acting in this movie is kind of staggering for for a relatively straightforward James Cameron action movie. Um, it just goes really hard, and, and something like that is really, I think, affecting. I don't, you know, I, I don't know what what your take would be. Um, but yeah, I guess to start there, like, what do you what do you think about like that scene and like, and I guess maybe just generally the the emotional pathos of this movie. We'll get to some of the bigger, you know, humanity themes later because those I have a more complicated relationship with. But in terms of the human stories in this and the the characters in this, do you feel like you connect with them emotionally and and that 
those 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 big moments land? You know, I think I have a more complicated relationship with you know even that scene in particular. Man, you just have a, a cold, dead heart. Well, no, huh? is that what you're? Well, I do. I I wish I wish yeah. she had died. Um, she deserved to die. Anyway, okay. Good. Um, yeah, yeah. I did like the part where Ed Harris started slapping his ex-wife, who's dead. Um, that was that was a bad look by Ed Harris. Um, that's emotionally, because he's trying to. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not a lesson on how the two. Uh, <laughs> two. CPR. No, but I I am torn because I think. That scene is a perfect example of kind of the mixed bag that is this movie for me. Because on one hand, I agree with you. It's as emotionally affecting, like Ed Harris's performance in that moment, as almost anything in Cameron's canon. I mean, it, it's just, he gets something out of Ed Harris in that moment. Later in the movie where Ed Harris is preparing to die to sacrifice himself, like there are just a few moments where Ed Harris is just like acting his heart out. Um, yeah. And reminding us that he is one of the most underrated like living actors alive right now. On the other hand, those scenes are also so they're a mixed bag for me because they, they have these just like small parts that I just don't think are written very well. Um, and honestly that hampers in some ways, the praise I would heap upon the cast in general, where sure. the, the script that they're often working with, can give them something that they nail delivery wise in one second. And then something that's eye rolling or, or actually at times distracting in the next, which can kind of take me out of it. Um, I think that scene is a perfect example because like there is a level of just like nonsense, wish fulfillment garbage taking place in the fact that she survives at all, you know, like she's dead. There's just no way she's coming back. Um, Transversing you know, outside uh, of a suit while already being drowned for like, uh, what was it like nah, five minutes fine. or something like that? Nah, so nah, no problem. But no, but I, I'm no not trying problems. to be. I'm not trying to be critical of it. It's just one of those examples where I, I really think the actors do their best, but then you get a line like Virgil U. Wiener, and you're like, who wrote this like script? And, and and that just limits the praise I can give it. It has nothing to do with the actors. And it doesn't actually take away from, like you're saying, the pathos of the relationships that shine through in these awesome moments. It's just more up and down for me than I probably yeah. think you're, you. Then I think you'd agree with me on. I think I think the one thing we could agree on is that the the writing basically needs an a crazy overqualified actor to make it work yeah right? sure like I, I think like i don't think anyone in this movie is a bad actor no. but i think that there's three or four people who are like again crazy overqualified and they make their lines work because they're doing all of these all this extra acting almost to like make you sort of buy that someone might actually say this and the other actors who are just normal actors um don't do that extra work and so you just have the writing and you're like okay that was yeah, that was interesting. Well, you know, we're maybe stamping on or you know, treading pretty close to what holds this movie back. But um, but I can agree with that. I, I think we would both agree with that. I, I think those emotional moments still landed largely for me pretty well. Sure. And there's a lot of, and again, it's just a little bit interesting to me in Cameron's filmography where arguably they're, with maybe the really big exception of Titanic, there just aren't that many like really heavy emotional moments right yeah it's a little bit more action oriented it's a little bit more adventure oriented um, yeah and, and they they yeah. do have a couple like 
moments shine through. And again, I, I don't want to slip into what didn't work, but this film is attempting to be an ensemble movie. How effective it is of that, I will we can discuss later. But there are these like smaller characters as part of that ensemble, you know, like Todd Graff is hippie and his sweet little rat that are just like so enjoyable as a character. And the yeah. actor is doing, like you're saying, so much with so little that I definitely still come away with more positive opinions of the performances than I do negative. And I certainly don't blame them for some of the insane throwaway lines that they are asked to read. But yeah, um, but I will also say that the performances that shine through in particular Harris um, and for me, Michael Bean, like those two are, some of the best work that I've seen from those actors in some ways, sometimes ever being hive baby, but being hive. Let's just do I it. Love let's just do it. Let's, let's do, let's get into the actors. Let's talk about our boy again. Yeah. <laughs> Cause we've already done it. Uh, I'll let you t- l- t- take, take Michael Bean for a second. He's a, he's a bad guy in this movie. Yeah. And he's yeah, great at it. Uh, he he's has, astounding at it. He's he so has, good. He is tasked with doing two things in the first half. He's tasked with being a sarcastic dick, which he, nails in the second half he is supposed to be someone who is spiraling into insanity which he nails and i don't know what else to say the dude just like radiates this like insane intensity that is made for james cameron movies even though i'm not sure how much he liked making james cameron movies that's another conversation for another day um he's definitely someone who like sees himself as like shakespearean actor in some ways yeah but man when he is given this kind of like meat on the bone to not on he crushes it and he is yeah. disturbing he's deranged in this movie and i believe yeah. he's deranged like that is it's not even questioned so um yeah i i love seeing him with the villain turn especially considering the roles he often gets in cameron movies this is so deeply different than like the yeah. stable hand and the heroic character he's meant to be in terminator right and again, it's so surprising, or or for that matter, the stable hand in, in Aliens. He's, yeah. he's kind of the same character as Terminator. But yeah, I think here, again, like you said, I don't want to repeat too much. It is, it's just very surprising that he's able to pull that off. There's also a side of that, uh, just real quick, of, of the journey his character goes on, also does represent some really, really good storytelling because mm-hmm. they describe to you the process of, um, I forgot the name all of a sudden, but pressure sickness or something like yeah, that? Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they describe all of this to you relatively early on of like, oh, you know, you start having these symptoms of shaking and you start having psychosis and you go, generally you go insane and blah, blah, blah. And then over the course of the movie, you see this very, very slowly happening to him. So there's like one scene where his hand's shaking. And now you are looking out for it. Again, You they have built the suspense in you watching this. Um, but he just becomes more and more unhinged as the movie goes. He does have a couple moments that are surprisingly nuanced. Like I, I did write down... There's that really interesting line after it's a convoluted thing, but basically, you know, by the circumstances of them taking the sub when they shouldn't have the, the military guys, uh, that causes all of this wreckage to happen and guys to die, blah, blah, blah. And there's a scene after that where he says to, to Bud, to Virgil, you know, he's grabs him. He says, I was under orders. I had no choice. And again, slightly surprising to me that the camera would bother to write in that's like, you know, there's a tiny bit of nuance to this character, yeah. not a lot, but there's a tiny bit of nuance to him. And there's some interesting storytelling with that. Uh, but yeah, beans, incredible. 
we've kind of already talked about Harris a lot, but suffice it to say, everything, every good thing we've said about actors in this movie, he just exemplifies. Yeah. Um, especially that that sense of like, well, and, and you just think for a second about his range because I, the only other movie we've talked about Ed Harris in, I, I believe, is Truman Show. Mm. Um, and it's tough to think of two more different characters than yeah. his Truman Show character and this character, uh, where that guy is this sophisticated, effete, intellectual, godlike sort of, you know, I, I don't know, that, that whatever, all, all of those things, that kind of character. This is like the most working class, standard kind of schlocky hero, like almost a pulp hero. He's covered in grease and um, and singing country songs and just kind of doing his best. And he's got a heart of gold. You know, you know this character. You've seen him in a million things. Um, but Harris brings like kind of a believability to it. I think that's yeah. the thing I was astounded by is I was like on paper – this should be a very cliche character that I kind of am rolling my eyes at, but he's so sold out to it and brings these little mannerisms and this and these little sort of um, acting tricks, I almost think, to making it feel lived in and making it feel like, oh, that that could be a real person I would run into on the street, you know? Um, he just does such a great job at that, and... And he has to be like this interesting figure in the movie where he's like tough, but also likable. And he's sort of a peacekeeper a lot between all these different factions that are going crazy uh, in this, in this claustrophobic thing. And at the end, he has to make the sacrifice play. Um, all this stuff that, is, that is kind of requires pretty big moves. And I think he does all of it great. It's funny because this is not technically his acting. This is just the character. But I still, I, I it still gets me that last message he sends on yeah. the suit. I guess it's not the last message, but the one, don't cry, baby. Knew this was one-way ticket, but you know I had to come. Love you, wife. That's actually great. And yeah. from a storytelling beat, I think I buy that that is like, you know, spoilers. Again, we hope you've seen the movie, but I buy that that is like a motivating factor from the NTI's perspective of like, this is a good thing about humanity. Yeah. And again, he has set up the character in such a way that I buy that movement by the, yes. I buy that that character has gone on that journey. hundred um, percent. So yeah, I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Uh, no, but, that, that last point was what I was going to say is, you know, when even like when he tries to like, you know, play off that he's going to die to help calm the people above with the, I think I'm yeah. going to stay down here a few more minutes or whatever. Uh, you just like buy that all of that feels real. And that yeah. it makes sense. And and that's a lot harder than people think to make a act of self-sacrifice that degree feel believable to the character. Because yeah. I think most writers just end up doing something where it's like, well, in a time of crisis, this person does the exact opposite of what they do in every other part of their life. And mm. if you've worked with human beings, you know, that's not true. Like crisis more often than not exemplifies our faults or the yeah. broken parts of ourselves um, then it does lead us to just like engage in completely alien behaviors that are heroic and brave. Right. So the fact that it feels believable, he would make that step and try to comfort others while he's facing his own death and all those parts is a testament to the journey of the character. Like you said, that's not really Harris, but his delivery of it makes it feel human as well. Yeah. And yeah, dude, totally I don't know. nothing but praise from a man 
He's a god, yeah. literally, in Truman Show. But I would, I would also nice. I would also say real briefly that as I think about it, as we're talking about it, I think Harris is is so critical to this movie because oh, yeah, it's easy to imagine. And I, 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 I hate to do this, Mike. You know how painful this sentence is going to be coming out of my mouth. But this is something that kind of holds Avatar back. Now, I want to be clear. Yeah, it is. Avatar is a great movie. <laughs> no, it's not. Avatar is an exceptionally great movie. But I have, you know, I have always been on record that Avatar really suffers from not having a more likable lead. Like, yeah. you know, no disrespect to that guy. He's a perfectly good, good actor, but he's not, like, inherently charismatic in the way that someone like, like um, Sigourney Weaver is in Aliens. Obviously, uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is in Terminators. And then you have uh, Harris, who I think in the version of this movie that has a competent actor in that role instead of an exceptional actor, I think this movie is even more forgettable, right? Like, yeah. And it pains me to say it's forgettable at all, but just apparently culture has forgotten it. But I think that effect is magnified if, if that's true, right? Yeah. It's even even harder to connect to this movie. I, I, um, I definitively yeah. think without the two magnets that are Bean and Harris in the negative and positive sense, like this movie is just lesser. Um, it is. Yeah. I think you're right. It, it They're doing so much with so little um, that it gets through some of the the off-ramps that are available in this movie if you want to tune yeah. out. So. This Agreed. this might be something a question for later, but I'm just I just want to ask you now. Where are you on uh, the Michael Bean scream death scream right as he realizes, which is a, a pretty harrowing death by the way. The sub he's in is collapsing from the pressure, um, but he lets out just this loud scream, and yeah, I couldn't I decide. I'm like, know. this might be terrible, but it also probably fits the character real nicely. So I'm not going to litigate I, it too much. You talked about the nuances that they uh, they give to his character that you like. I yeah. love I love the scene where they're making eye contact and it's slowly cracking and he's just kind of like <laughs> confronting his end. Um, yeah. That is yeah. when I also said earlier that it's a mixed bag because they immediately after poignant moments throw in just like not silly <laughs> nonsense. That's how I yeah. interpreted the screen or I was like, oh, cool. And then there's just this. There's just like this ham. Um it felt out of place to me, but the scene right before it, leading up to it, I thought is one of the it's best great. of the movie. So it might be telling that I forgot about that scene compared to the the screaming. So that yeah. that might be a mark against the movie. Yeah. But I yeah. Would, yeah. just wanted to get your thoughts. Do you have anything on uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio? Famously uh, hated uh, shooting this movie. Uh, totally soured her relationship with Cameron. Wonder um, why. <laughs> wonder why? Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely some tough, tough times. Um, all the same, I mean, just since it sounds like we're talking code language, I don't think there was ever accusations of harassment or something like that. Oh, just no, like no, no. It's a general, miserable shoot. Like, yeah, just, just miserable. a miserable shoot. Just like being cold and underwater. And, and you know, apparently he kind of went crazy on some of the takes, too. Like doing the yeah. whole, let's do it again and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I mean, that's all tough. Um, having said that, I think she does really a really good job in this movie. The character yeah. is a little... Uh, painting and broad strokes you know like like definitely resorts to cl cliche like overworked successful woman who uh you know has certain parts of her private life that aren't in, that are kind of not put together very well um, yeah but secretly has a heart of gold like that whole arc is like yeah okay i get it um but she still sells it and she's still and it, it actually makes it i think one of the most fun characters in the movie only because everyone is so 
so aware of her character's uh what's the pg way of saying it because they say it a pg-13 way a lot in the movie her character's intensity i guess sure um her the the fact her leadership that every ability there you go the fact that every character in the movie is constantly referencing that but in a fun way not in a like getting on her way i yeah. think it actually makes it a fun character and like so, sort of enjoyable to watch her interactions with everyone else um, yeah. I, so, so in other words, I think she does a great job. I don't know if you have thoughts thoughts on the character or the oh, actors. No. I think she does a great job. She's a she's obviously working with a cliche in a lot of ways, like you already said, um, which leads you to want to like praise her character with some cliche words, like plucky and stuff like that. Um, but she does add just a, a level of life and spark to a film that has a lot of people doing very serious acting. Um, even if it's hammy, they're still playing serious characters who are taking the situation very seriously. And she just yeah. adds like a, a bite and, and a wit at times that I think uh, cuts some of the tension, especially in the first half of the movie. So I really appreciate that about her character. Um, I think she, I mean, dude, the scene where she drowns is one of the most harrowing <sighs> scenes of this movie. And yeah. a lot of that is her acting her heart out. And you're like, Oh yeah, she thinks she's going to die now on set. She might've thought she was going to die. Um, that's very real. So I don't know how much it's acting, but I buy, you know, when she's like running out of the pocket of air and she's just like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. I mean, that's acting. That's just like good, solid acting. Um, also, I think she's she's up far. Yeah. Also by far, like the most terrifying scene to watch. Cause I'm like, yeah, but again, just to reiterate one of my absolute deepest fears. And she really, really sells you on, a character like yeah thinking that they're gonna drown and like being in a sub that is slowly losing uh breathable airspace like right up to the moment um i, I should have mentioned earlier i included that scene in when i was talking about the emotional intensity Agreed. of them reviving yeah. her that's yeah. all like one 20 minute chunk of just like edge of your seat filmmaking yes. to me um a little telling that there's still 45 minutes of the movie left after that. We're going to get to that later. A little preview for what maybe holds this movie back. But, <laughs> sure. um, but yeah, you're right. I think that is exceptional acting. Um, and yeah, just a, a really nice... I, th- I think when this movie, in general in this movie, when all the parts are working together, it is an, ex- it is an astoundingly good movie. Yeah. Uh, as we will get into, that is not always true. And so I think yeah. that is when... That, those are the times that we'll have some some things to say on the other side of it. Um, I don't have too many other big things. I have a couple other small things to mention. Uh, the music is really good. Oh, In yeah. some ways, it, 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 it I, I think when I first saw the movie, I thought it was maybe a little over the top. Um, just because it's... I, I think the music is geared more towards the overarching themes of the movie than mm-hmm. the small stakes themes of the movie. Sure. Um, which is okay. But and w- once I got that, I think I was totally on board, but just like in a vacuum, it's just a really great soundtrack. And Alan Silvestri, yeah. like I said, is, is a God. So, yeah. Uh, so he just does a great job. Um, I, I want to <laughs> real quick to that Yeah. on the score. I agree with you that largely the score in the, the soundtrack is set to the larger themes, but the moments where it's not are so good. Like there's the scene where they encounter the water snake, face whatever for the first time and and she goes chasing after it down the hallway and it immediately cuts into like this almost et-esque 
excitable childlike background score as like yeah. they're giddily yeah. chasing after this first encounter and it's so different than like the epic builds and awe-inspiring you know orchestra noise that is so often accompanying some of the larger more actiony scenes of the movie that it, it's just like such a delightful moment in the movie and it's just like a classic example of the score not only accentuating what's going on but almost adding an emotion to this scene where you're like oh this girl is like really excited to be like the first human being to encounter an alien. Um, yeah. And so there are some, there are some small moments where he does, the score does come down to that very uh, small level view that I think are wildly successful. So I just wanted to shout that, that one scene out in particular um, while agreeing with you more broadly on how the score fits in the film. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, okay. We've said some not, we, we've, we've, talked about some mixed feelings with some of the writing uh-huh. but i did write down a few lines that for better or worse i i, I definitely remembered uh, virgil you wiener movie. I, virgil you wieners is right at the top that you know i think it's it's pretty emotionally affecting <laughs> i wrote down there's some lines that i i just genuinely defend i think like uh harris's character says at the beginning uh, he gets on the phone and he says yeah, I'm calm. I'm a calm person. Is there some reason I shouldn't be calm as he's getting <laughs> into this, this phone conversation? Stuff like that's great. Uh, on the other side of the coin, I don't know if you even remember this. I don't know the character's name, but when the guy in the boat, in, in their like connecting boat at the surface, radios down to tell him that the crane is coming down, when, when that guy shouts, uh, the crane, the crane is on its way down. It's coming down to you. He literally sounds like that, Mike. So that yeah. is just, I don't know if you remember the scene, Beautiful. but it's beautiful. So we'll come. So coming out of that uh, here. So yeah, I think that is, that is just 10 out of 10. I, I don't even know if I'm talking about the writing anymore. Maybe just from a, <laughs> a performance perspective. I, of the it's ages. just incredible. I love the, I love the whole character and I should have looked up the guy's name, but the whole character of, I think it's Jumper. The, the, the guy who goes into a coma after seeing the alien in the, and the sub he has this mm. line when he wakes up from the coma he says very matter-of-factly i'm okay bud i just figured i was dead back there when i saw that angel coming for me and yeah then there's, a, there's yeah. a pause and then ed harris says yeah okay why don't you tell us about that later and then he moves on to whatever <laughs> they were doing that's actually a great moment it that's is. funny and that like lands I, i'm there yeah. for it, it uh, i don't know if you had any lines those were the three i wrote down that I was like there, there's some moments in this movie um I, I relate yeah, deeply those... to when the guy's like, triple pay isn't actually that much when I think about it. <laughs> like, I always love that line. Triple pay sounded like a lot, but it ain't. And it's like, yeah, nope. Yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah, I get that. That's how I would feel too right now. <laughs> it's good. So. Like, yeah, where, no, are this... on, uh, where are you on, we all breathe liquid for nine months, bud. Your body will remember it. Do you, uh... <laughs> so Does that would check hand... out with... On yeah. one hand, in that stupid documentary you made me watch, um, the the that's a thing. That's with real. The rats. That's a real thing. Like the, yeah. the actually yeah. liquid air thing. That's also just like not how human biology works in the womb. But yeah. so it's kind of funny that they felt the need to like throw that light in as like one of those. I hope we don't catch this kind of moments. And uh, yeah, to defend but, something I mean, you, that is actually a real thing. Yeah, that it is weird to to consider. But anyways, yeah, 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 yeah. This is like just that's just not the the science behind that. Anyway, don't worry about it. Um, yeah, I wish they had just explained the actual thing and how it worked because it's fascinating yeah. that that was a real thing. 
Uh, but yeah, not not there for it. That one definitely threw me out of the movie. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> by the by, it's also hard to watch that after seeing the documentary because in the movie, they make it look like Harris is in the suit and it fills up with the liquid and then he's breathing and ever and he kind of is, you know. He's yeah, turns out Harris is actually liquid. drowning. <laughs> yeah, in, in reality, he's just holding his breath and like watching it now like i find it's extremely harrowing to to because yeah. i just find myself imagining like he just has to look calm as he's just holding his breath just waiting for the or the shot to end so they can dump all the liquid out in time for him to breathe who literally decided insane. to make this movie yeah yeah absolutely insane um last thing i just want to call out overall the tone is really great and we sort of talked about that but I think the thing I, I most wanted to mention was the way that it sort of starts as a horror movie and then slowly becomes an adventure movie. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Which is a, a, a path that I think Cameron has done a couple times. Like Aliens is arguably similar. Um, but I, I just want to call that out because I think it's really cool. Like you could, you could almost pinpoint this moment around like the tentacle creature thing where it becomes like a decidedly more adventurously spirited movie. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess, and then I guess last, last thing I want to call out is the two shots or, or the two other intense scenes, which I've referenced them both, but just to explicitly state it, when they're exploring the wrecked nuclear submarine is extremely like tense edge of your seat filmmaking. Like he's just an incredible filmmaker. Um, and then just in general, no one shoots a slow a, a space slowly filling up with water the way james cameron does yeah actually yeah. a space filling up with water at any speed because like the other two visually arresting things that we haven't talked about we, we talked a little bit about when the slub the sub is slowly filling up with water and that's an extremely harrowing scene but there's also a lot of shots from the submarine at the beginning and then even the oil rig uh when it get like water is crashing in that again, like I've seen other movies where that quote unquote scene is playing out, that situation is playing out, where it doesn't look one hundredth as like dangerous as this looks, possibly because this actually was kind of again, from what I gather, see the the making of, they kind of did just build the set and then get the actors on and like, hey, we're just gonna dump like a thousand gallons of water into this set at once. Uh, and they do, I mean, you know, let's not be unfair. They do a lot of stuff to make it safer and things, but it, it looks like that. Like it looks as crazy dangerous as that sounds. And I just think it's really cool and is, is, is really, really, again, visually astounding. Yeah. Um, it looks a lot more real when you I actually know. drown people. So, yeah. It's, it's always, you know. you know, I just think it's the way to go. You just got to go big or go home. Yeah. Um, I got, I got two more. Um, yeah, what do you one got? is very specific and then one is like very broad. I, I want to shout out the specific one, which is just the intro scene is a banger. Um, the sonar yeah. beeping cut to the submarine that just the intense buildup to the ship flying by the collision and then the sinking. It, it's almost one of those scenes in a camera movie where like, did you make this movie just because you wanted to shoot a submarine crash scene? Like, is yeah. this like yeah. literally the scene He's that so you wanted to make this movie for? Um, cause it's such a good scene and it's an effective scene. Um, and you almost wish that James Cameron had just made like a World War II submarine movie, um, while you're watching it. Yeah. I think zooming out, I just want to shout out how great of a, of a framing structure this movie has in terms of being a blockbuster, hmm. like yeah. the submarine event sets it up. The government involvement creates the central mystery as they go below and then the coming hurricane establishes like the suspense that keeps the story 
kind of on the rails in terms of like a ticking clock, right? Yeah. And and that pairs really well with the nuclear warhead below, the hurricane above. And it just creates like a perfect structure for a blockbuster in terms of like having every element you need. I don't know. There's a simplicity to that plot line that once you kind of see the framework, you're like, oh, that was really, really simple, but really effective in trying to keep a movie yeah. like this moving. Um, so yeah, just shout out broadly to that. I think that that's an underrated thing to him as a filmmaker is yeah. making things that are so can be somewhat complex, but really are, are very easy to grasp by anyone watching the movie. Right. I often yeah. call him like the, the supreme populist filmmaker, yeah. um, which I, I, I say is a compliment that I think there's a reason why he can make all of these crazy sci-fi stuff land for huge groups of people. Um, because he does stuff like that. He does that extra work to make like the framing something that you can grasp. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I see what this is doing. Uh, I guess that anything else for why this movie works? Uh, the self-sacrificial love of God expressed through okay. people to each other. I was to gonna. Save I was gonna note that neither of us <laughs> called out the overarching themes that much, which uh, may or may not be a segue. So let's just get into it. What holds this movie back? Um, I actually going to start with some light ones, if that's okay. Yeah. Ex exactly. Well, no, I guess two effects have not aged well. And they're so yeah, small <laughs> that I feel even bad calling them out. I'm, you know what? You may have different effects than me, but I think there's two that have not aged well. Yeah. Um, some of the underwater submarine shots have these incredibly like stop motiony arm claw sure. things. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? That looks yes. very out of the eighties, very stop uh -huh. motion. Uh, those have not aged well. And then again, on the shots of those small submarines outside, some of them are very obviously like a photo reel. Instead of like looking into the submarine and seeing someone sitting there, it's yeah. obviously like a projection in the thing because it's a model, right? And there's yep. no real person sitting in there. Some of those look a little tough too. Um, and then generally, this one, I, I don't know, because the, the alien stuff at the end, I think is supposed to look really outlandish. So yeah. in that sense, I think it's you. I almost think I don't buy it just because it looks so ridiculous, right? Yeah, like maybe it the, looks real. The summer, or the the entire station like sitting propped yeah. up on like I'm like, well, why wouldn't it have just fallen over and crashed and everyone yeah. died? Um, anyway, there's whatever. Yeah, there, there's some <laughs> tough stuff with that, and it looks a little too. I don't know. It it, it doesn't quite look look to the same level of real as the other things and it's tough because yeah. they're you're comparing it to real for real right you're comparing it yeah. to shots that just are exactly what they're depicting um again that's relatively minor to me like it's 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 actually truly remarkable how much the effects of the movie have held up that again before major cgi most of this movie looks incredible yeah uh, but yeah there's a couple tough things um yeah i, I think generally yeah. the models agree with that i catch the models every time nothing to be said about that are you I sure think you catch all of them though because no no like, no, no, no. I, they, I they say I'm, that they sneak in a lot yeah I, i'm saying the ones that you pointed out are there i sure, you have sure. another pair of eyes affirming what you said those are moments where i'm like oh that's a model um yeah I, you may not agree with me but i'm gonna throw the tidal wave sequence in there um oh no i agree with you yeah 100%. pretty critical to the success of the film to have that in it looks uh like a 1992 89 whatever um moment of cgi 
sad. Well, it's funny how the camera in all the shots where so so we're talking about the shots where the the giant wave is forming just off the edge of the beach. It's actually kind of a cool shot on its own. I think the yeah. biggest giveaway of how fake it is is that the camera is only ever in exactly one position when looking at the wave. Did you yeah, notice that? Right. It's yeah, not yeah. like moving. It's not like giving us a sweep. It's just sitting still looking in one angle at the wave. And that to me is such a giveaway of like, wow, you this was really hard to make that effect. And you could not, you didn't have a lot of flexibility with how you made that shot look. Um, yeah, I, I could absolutely agree with that. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of, this will now be a bit of a bigger criticism, but um, so so we've talked about the extended edition of this movie and how important it is to watch that because uh, just to go into the specifics of it, the, the non-extended cut of this movie cuts out, first of all, a lot of Bud and Elizabeth's relationship, so which strange. is so weird to me because that yeah. is the entire emotional arc of the movie is their relationship. Um and then perhaps even stranger, it cuts out the entire plot of the NTI's threatening humanity's extinction, which is kind of the entire last act of the movie. Yep. Um, so that's just weird, but that's not yep. actually my criticism because like, I don't know if I can criticize it for that because he just had to make the movie shorter. My criticism no, is that he didn't. even with all of that in mind, uh, this movie is too long. Yep. Like this movie is really too long because, yep. and I specifically wrote this um, and I, I referenced this earlier, but when they resurrect Lindsay in this movie uh, and I was watching a couple nights ago, I checked on like my, my computer to see how much longer I had. And there are still 45 minutes yep. of the movie after that scene, which by the, and that movie, that seems like two hours into the movie. And, and that is the emotional apex of the movie. So I remember checking and thinking, Oh my God, I'm still in this movie for 45 minutes. Michael Bean is gone. We've gone through all of these. It's like, why am I even watching after this point? It's and crazy. there's some great moments after that, but this is so long. It's just yeah. so long. And you definitely feel like he would later learn how to sort of, how to compress his storytelling, I think a little more effectively. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. That one may be a little straightforward. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, but yeah, what, I don't... what do you got, Mike? <laughs> I don't know if I agree with you that he learned his lesson. I think this is a um, regular I mean, Terminator, issue. Terminator 2, Titanic, T2 is I think, is about too as, as long. long as it should be. <laughs> T2 is too, it's like two How and a half hours long. You? Go watch the, it again. We're, we're, Go watch it again. No, no, no. Watch it. no, 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 no. We're going to yeah. do the T2 episode. Yeah, uh, and you're going to say it's too long. Um, I'm going to say it's a perfectly paced movie. There's nothing wrong with it. Get out of here. So it... And it's interesting. Titanic is fine. Avatar is fine. Well, I don't so, think he has another movie that I think is too long. It's true. Avatar is way too long. Um, no, <laughs> but, no, get out of here. Zero uh, percent. It's interesting to note that he does not make a movie shorter this one ever again. And that is true. And there's something to be said about I. I, I wonder if he learned the wrong lesson from this movie that kind of shows up in the criticism that you laid about cutting the wrong things because. You know, it actually is his fault. He didn't have to make it shorter. He chose to. He had final cut. That's true. He and, had final cut, which is something a lot of people get wrong. Like, if yeah. you, like just if you ask an average person, like, oh, he had to cut it for this. It's like, no, he actually chose to do that, which is even and weirder. It, yeah. And it seems like he overcompensates from that point of just, like, not wanting to risk having, you know, just the disaster in some ways that is the 
almost nonsensical nature of the film without the scenes he cut. Because like you said, mm. it loses the emotional backbone for large parts of it. And it loses the stakes and like ultimately the final act of the film in the original cut. And, and what's so fascinating is to me is the film still too long, like you noted. And part of me wonders if that's just because he doesn't want to cut any of the parts that were so grueling for him to make. Like he's so <laughs> geeked out yeah. about the underwater scenes that he doesn't want to cut any of those and literally left on the editing room floor, like the parts of his movie that make it an intelligible movie. And yeah, I don't know what to do with that other than the fact that he does not make that mistake again. Um, yeah. But it, it is telling that the original cut of this film is just like, it's missing so much of the beats that make their relationship make sense. And ultimately, like, like you said, make the final act make any sense um, because it's pretty anticlimactic in the uh, theatrical release. Yeah. So it's very like, wait, what happened? Like that is, so, that is explicitly your thought process of yeah. the, the movie of the theatrical cut. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't really know what to say, but it is still too long. And, and again, there's this gut part of me that's just like, he does not want to cut any of the the cool stuff he did. And he's willing to let um, other things fall by the wayside as he tries to nail those aspects. Yeah, actually, you know, it's funny because my essay is going to be about this topic a little bit. Um, my essay is more about how he's kind of, this is this movie represents a stepping stone for him, I think more as a storyteller um, mm. than the necessarily the, the, the practical side of things like you're talking about. But I will note that there is this, I, I really, I find, I'm very interested in your point about how he almost may have been too attached to the grueling parts of the filmmaking to want to cut certain things about it. Uh, because I, I explicitly remember, I love James Cameron um, uh, documentaries about his movies. Mm -hmm. um, because they're always so crazy. But I very specifically remember seeing things in both Avatar and Titanic that were these huge parts of production that were like huge parts of the storyline that they had to do all of this intense work and research for and framing and shot and shot alignment and all this intense stuff only to for him in the cut to realize, you know what, it's not working and cut it out. Yeah, And I do, um, that almost makes me wonder if there's even like, like, kind of affirming your point that that could have almost been his lesson like in the abyss it's like you know or almost the reverse of like well i've never done anything that hard and so anything after that's like i don't care how hard i worked on it should it be in the movie or not yeah and being able to look at it and say ah you know maybe I, i'd spent five million dollars on this shot and did all of this work to make it work but it doesn't work for the movie so i'm just gonna cut it out and yeah, that does yeah. seem like something he could have pulled as a lesson from this movie. Um, well, and so it's, I'm, it's I'm intrigued in, by the idea. Yeah. It's interesting because it's such a cool scene. But for example, when Ed Harris and the other member of his crew are swimming underwater to go confront Bean, right? Yeah. That is I such a that. long, technically cool scene that you're just like, this probably didn't need to be in the film at all. Like, yeah, um, totally agree. Totally. Yeah. Agree. So there's just a couple examples in this movie that come to mind. And I would be intrigued to hear him actually speak on that and and i think that's a cool observation to note that that you see that change as he makes future movies but i know yeah. you'll talk about that in the pot uh monologue so we'll yeah yeah we'll so that there. no worries what do you got um well yeah that actually so that actually also kind of builds into another repeated issue that i have with some of cameron's movies which is i i don't know how much time he i don't know if he spends enough time in this movie on some of the smaller details that he needs to pull off to achieve the in-between 
plot goals that he's trying mm. to kind of come to or bring to fruition. So yeah. like we keep contrasting it to aliens aliens goes out of its way to set up a ensemble camaraderie based vibe amongst this like blue collar crew. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we always, we talked about it on that podcast. It spends like an hour with nothing going on, but you falling in love with these characters, or at least like getting attached to them and their interactions together and the way that they harp on each other. And that makes it. So when the alien starts picking them off, you feel it like you really feel the stakes. You feel the loss. You feel the horror of it because they do so much front end work to make you care about the people. And this film obviously has some aspirations to make you feel that way about this crew. And the script is not given nearly enough attention, in my opinion, to make that successful. Like I Mm. do not care much at all when anything happens to anyone who's not like, Lindsay Ed Harris's character and uh, Bean in this movie. And, <laughs> and I, and I only say that doesn't work because I think the film wants me to care. You know what I mean? Sure. It's not critical to enjoying the movie. They can just be throwaway uh, crew members that are just there to remind you that the ship is sinking, but I don't get the uh, a sense that Cameron wanted me to feel that way. Um, so I just think that's a miss. Does that make sense? No, that absolutely makes sense. That and that's a similar criticism uh, to what I I often bring to some of his more recent movies too. That I think uh, I think Aliens really was the pinnacle of that, and there is certainly an idea that I can latch onto where you you don't connect with the other stories in quite the same way. And there's a lot yeah. of other stories. Like it was staggering to me the number of people I forgot from this movie was kind of staggering. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a pretty big crew at the beginning, and uh, I mean to be fair, a lot of them die. In fact, a lot of them die pretty early on. Um, but even within that, yeah, there's maybe one or two people that I really remember, and then everyone else, I'm just like, oh yeah, there is this like country music singing uh, pilot uh, <laughs> subpilot who, uh, um, oh man, I, just, I forgot. Like I, I can't even remember other details about the character. I was going to say something exactly. else that she yeah, does, 100%. but I don't know what they are. So yeah, it's definitely, it, it's weird because strictly speaking, that fits the definition of holding this movie back. I don't know that there's many movies that really succeed at that. So so in a sense, I'm, I'm hesitant to give them too hard of a time with it because I'm like, yeah, I don't know, that's tough. Um, but, but broadly, I agree, I, I think certainly. Um, I actually only have one other really big one. And to be okay. honest with you, it's not a negative so much as it's a question. It might sure. be a negative, but I'm willing I'm willing to hear outside counsel. Where are we on the entire NTIs are going to kill all of humanity because they're convinced <laughs> we're going to destroy the world situation? Like are we yeah. are we are you on board cuz I think it's telling that neither of us zero because that is essentially the main theme of the movie, right? Yeah. And it is painted, believe me, in very clear strokes by the end. Um, yeah. I might as well fold that in with this. I, I will say whether or not you you like that thematic move or not, or or that story move or not, I think Cameron just straight talk soapboxing us at the end is yeah. kind of heavy-handed. Like yep. specifically when Bud is sending those messages back and Elizabeth is reading them, and it's like uh, I've made some new friends down here. They think that, you know, they have something to say about how we're, what we're doing up here. And it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. Shut yeah, up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so that specific 
iteration of this I don't think is successful. And that one I definitely want to stay away from because my essay is basically entirely about that. But just just the idea of the situation um, being, again, so the, the premise that these sort of underwater advanced, not quite aliens, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, aliens uh, are threatening to destroy us because we are going to war with each other. Are you on board with the plot move? Does it kind of come out of nowhere for you? Well, yay, it was a little, just yay or nay? It was a little strange when Imagine started playing um, as they were talking. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, that, it's like, you know, I was with them until... <laughs> <laughs> one step too far mr Cameron. a little too much a little heavy-handed um you know i'm always here for like the conversation of humanity's duality uh, yeah you know that the immense capacities for like selfishness and selflessness and self-destruction and self-sacrifice it's heavy-handed in this movie i have a lot of questions about the wisdom of the aliens that they watched like one self-sacrificial act and were like oh just kidding <laughs> They can get along, and they're like, that outweighed nuclear, looming nuclear destruction. Frankly, how dare you? Because that was a very emotional act. Did you read no, that message? Was. I'm just, I'm just confused no, at right, how, you're right, you're like, right. couldn't they, like, hack a couple cell phones and probably hear some other calls or something? I don't know. They just need more data to prove that that's not an anomaly. Um, nope. They're right. Yeah, you're, you're I don't, I don't know how I feel about it. I guess what I'm trying to say is I enjoy sci-fi's constant butting up against that theme, against, again, humanity's dualism. Um, I don't know how effectively it's depicted in this movie. Um, yeah. It feels a little uh, easily resolved in terms of the threat of these aliens and then ultimately how quickly they determine not to act on it. Um, Very deus ex machina, in a sense. Yeah. Right? Like, like yeah. sort of you know, they NTIs just kind of roll in and a aren't going to kill us. Yay. And B solve every other plot problem kind of just by snapping their fingers. And you're like, Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And it only feels bad to me because otherwise we've gone on such an intense emotional journey, right. With, with yeah. our characters. So it's yeah. like, it feels almost like a betrayal of that. Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't know. What, and there's a weird, so there's a weird other tangential point which is I don't necessarily... So my assumption, even on the rewatch, because I had forgotten some of the beats of this movie, was that, you know, Bean taking the nuclear weapon to attack them was why they were mm. about to attack us. And then they realize, oh, we're not actually all hostile to them. And they back off. And that's not what the movie's getting at. So I also just kind of yeah. wonder what the point of the nuclear weapon in this movie is as I think about it, but, um, but yeah, I don't know, man, I'm with you. I, I think it's not a, what didn't work, but I don't think it's, it's very well executed in terms of thematic resonance. Um, yeah. At the end of the day. Yep. And we'll get into that a little bit more later too, but, but I, I do think it, we have to mention it in this section because I think again, like looking at some of his later work, this is something that, that does mark this as in some ways, a less, a less successful movie. Um, yeah. than what he would go, go, get on, go on to do later. Um, and again, just to, to reiterate this point, uh, it gets just crazy preachy in this movie. <laughs> just <laughs> just real. And, and like even more so than any other, like like if you've seen, if you thought Avatar, because Avatar gets a little soapboxy, but this, it doesn't hold a candle to this movie, honestly. No, like no, no, he no. just really goes for it. And it's again, 
maybe not the most successful. Okay, well, uh, I don't know. With that, I think we're good just to move on. Uh, in this next section, Mike and I have each prepared a few uh, stray thoughts, just as it says, some stray thoughts about the movie. Uh, I'm going to go first. Is opening, or I guess I should ask, how pretentious is it to open your movie with a Nietzsche quote? Like, give me a scale of <laughs> 1 to 10. Is it like, like are we over the top? It yeah. literally has nothing to do with the thematic resonance nothing of the movie. Nothing to do with the movie. It just has the word abyss in it. Incredibly, <laughs> incredibly pretentious. It is helpful, though, because that's a very quick test if you're watching the extended version or not. That uh, The quote was cut in the theatrical edition of the movie. I don't know if you know that. So, they did it. That's upsetting. Uh, it's help- so, yeah, that's helpful that you can just instantly know which version you're watching. But, yeah, opening with that quote, I... I I roll my eyes every time. I'm just yeah, like, it's oh ridiculous. my God. It's not like, uh, anyway, it's not even a theme of the movie. Ugh, whatever. Yeah, not even vaguely related to the movie. Again, <laughs> it literally just has the word abyss in it. And it's like, we're good to go. It's like, I don't know if we are. Anyways. Oh, man. Um, when this movie opens with sonar in a submarine, I definitely thought you had hacked my computer to trick me into watching Hunt for Red October. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> definitely uh, thought I had been hoodwinked. Thank you for helping me sneak in. I'm just going to piggyback off that, sneak in a stray thought that I thought I was going to cut, which is that Humphrey October came out one year after this movie. So I like to think that it sort of set up the, there was just a nice little zeitgeist of great submarine movies. I kind of wish they came back. It's a great setting. Yeah, I love submarine movies, actually. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. That is not my stray thought because I only have a limited number and that one was just building off of yours. Um, those people on the beach are not nearly happy enough that a full-on apocalypse just inexplicably stopped. <laughs> so so it's a full-on apocalypse. Like, the oceans are literally rising to, like, mile-high waves about to encompass all land and humanity. And then the waves, you know, pull away. And the people on the beach are kind of just like, oh, man, that's cool. Oh, that's really great. They're all looking around. There's some, like, kind of light laughs and some kind of, like, <laughs> smiles. And I'm like, Close you one, should Bob. be like, <laughs> if there was an asteroid about to hit the planet and at the last second it diverts away, I'd like to think there'd be some parties or something going down. Just another no. Tuesday. Yeah, just another Tuesday for these people. They're just chill. They're just like, yeah, people were just having a good time in the 80s, I guess. Didn't 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 really phase them. Good on them. But geez. Are we ready to make poor blue-collar laborers being offered massive bonuses to die doing governmental jobs a trope for horror sci-fi? It seems, I mean, yeah, if we're, there, there's a long and storied history of this, right? Like, yeah. back to Alien, back to, to, to this. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, like how we had important two. <laughs> we're like, you know, back to Alien long and the Abyss. Long and storied, Mike. Long <laughs> and storied. <laughs> aliens is also kind of like this so that brings it to two <laughs> two of which are in the same franchise <laughs> and then there's alien and abyss long and story um <laughs> i really like how so in the documentary for this movie uh they're interviewing all the actors and a lot of them are kind of trying to 
not say too explicitly how much they hated filming this movie, right? Like they, they're <laughs> kind of talking codedly. But what I really love is how all of the most upbeat people are the bad guys. Did you notice yeah. that? Yeah. Like the but Bean is just seems like super jazzed. He's just like, yeah, Bean I was having fun the too whole time. Into it. He is yeah, he's way very, too into like, it. Psychotically into it. Um <laughs> the other like Navy, like evil Navy SEALs are all like, Yeah, we were just having a good time. It just seemed like a really cool film set. And you're like, man, yeah. what, what's up with that? I don't know why, and then, but it's And it's then Ed Harris is out here being like, I stared death in the face. <laughs> I it shook me to my core, and I'll never be the same again. And Bean's like, radical, bro. Ed Harris straight up, uh, yeah, talking about like like breaking down because he's like, I was confronting death and like mad at myself that I was like afraid of that. And you just want to, Mike, you texted me. You're like, I just want to give him a hug and just be like, dude, it's just a movie. Take a breath a little bit. What are yeah. we doing? You've been gaslit. Uh, it's okay to feel bad about what happened to you. <laughs> you're, it's okay to, to, to be upset about almost dying. That's a normal thing to be upset about. James Cameron uh, almost killed you, dude. It's okay. <laughs> Poor Ed Harris, man. Uh, what do you got? Uh, better oil men asked to do an impossible job in a movie. This, There Will Be Blood this. or Armageddon. Oh. I knew it was going to be Armageddon. <laughs> there Will Be Blood is kind of an interesting <laughs> an interesting reading. I'm going to be honest got with you. Um, between this and Armageddon, I think it's this no no question. I I'm a I'm a hater. I'm gonna be honest. I've seen Armageddon once and I thought it was trash. Um, <laughs> what a Michael Bay yeah. movie! I know, I know. It's pretty weird for me. I also am a secret Transformers defender, so like I, I'm all over the place. Ooh, weird um, take. Not not anything beyond the first movie. The first movie is good, like solid seventy five percent good. This is the Transformers pod. Welcome We're to the Transformers pod. Talk about Transformers. Uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. I'll take this any day of the week over Armageddon. How about, whoa, wait, uh, let's throw in sunlight in there. What do you got? Who do you got? You mean sunshine? Uh, sunshine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, that's um, the Danny, Bo- Danny Boyle, right? Sunshine. Yeah, dude. Well, better question. Is sunshine a better movie? If the psychopath at the end is just Michael Bean <laughs> running around. The, the answer is obviously yes. I don't know why okay. that's why you're even asking. Yeah. Whatever the 100%. combination of the abyss and sunshine is, is the best oil men movie. Ever Man, made. There's some universe where they have that movie. There's some universe where James Cameron, uh, also didn't wait, make, so- yeah. So sunshine characters aren't oil men. What are you talking about? What are we talking they're about? They're not oil right men, now? but they're like they're like working class guys, right? No, they're all scientists. They're humanity. It's possible I don't I don't remember that much about sunshine. <laughs> Way wrong. It's possible I saw this movie one time like 14 years ago. <laughs> Great movie. Um, good times. I love that. I'm just moving on to my point. I love yeah, good. that. James Cameron makes these like crazy kind of macho action films, but basically always portrays the U S military as over aggressive, moronic baboons with way yeah. too much power. Do you yeah. notice that? Like in yeah. every single movie, he's just, do I notice over that the top? Like, I mean, I, it's hard not to notice. Um, this movie, it's not as, Oh no, it's pretty. Yes, it is. Yeah. 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 They're terrible. I like that movie. though. Yeah. I like that. Me too. Good on you, James Cameron. Anyways. Continuing the uh, military conversation, every time I watch a movie in which a submarine is operated, I arrive at two inevitable conclusions. First, this is the last thing on Earth I would ever want to do. Uh, It's a direct contrast to movies about going into space, which I would love to do. And then two, I have no concept whatsoever how submarines work. (laughs) 
like at all. I don't understand any of it. It's just like they're they could say anything and they'd be like, oh, this is really like, bad. Yeah. The hydro converter has fractured under the pressure of monotic weight. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, word. True. <laughs> tight. Tight. I just say they're on the edge of a sea like, oh, man, that sounds submarines really are crazy. <laughs> I love submarines, even if I'm vaguely terrified of the idea of them. Yeah, so I do know a lot about them, but yeah, no, I'm I'm on board. Um, those cool on the street, cool, cool break. Those on the street interviews about the prospective nuclear war are, are seriously some of the worst dialogue I've ever heard recorded <laughs> in so media. Do you know what I'm talking about? What they're doing those, yes. and it's just so like it's like the again, it's just like no disrespect to these people, but it's just like community theater level acting with community what? theater level script writing. Of just like, well, I'm just not sure there's anything we can do, you know? Uh, just, just just times are tough. And it's like, dude, this is the least real person I've ever seen in any movie ever. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. Oh, shucks. Nuclear holocaust. Uh, yeah, well, I don't What can understand. you do about that? Is one, like, cliche woman holding her baby being like, well, what can you do, I guess? It just seems like everyone's going too crazy. And it's like, no one talks like this. No one talks like this. What <laughs> Thanks, are you Obama. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> uh, beautiful anyways so this might be insensitive but i'm gonna yeah. say it um yeah we need to talk about boomer directors and their struggles with divorce because it's yeah. wild how central it is to movies made in the 80s the moment when bud's wedding ring saves his life is like the ultimate eye roll movie of cameron's career or ultimate I eye actually- roll moment i'm actually on board with that moment just because the action filmmaking of it is so good Cause like yeah, he just showed you them. Well, no, 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 calm down, calm down, relax a little bit. You just saw that one um, door close and the dudes totally drown, and that's very harrowing. And then you're seeing the exact same thing happen with Bud, and he barely gets his hand in there, and the ring stops it from closing. I think it's shot really well. Uh, yeah, I agree with you that the messaging is a little like. Okay. Let's just let's just okay. all talk about how. The commitment to covenantal marriage, despite all odds, and uh, is what saves his life and kill it kills his his single friend. Actually, <laughs> arguably saves die. all of humanity because uh, <laughs> him saying "love you, wife" is what causes. All I just to be like, oh, I just maybe want, humans are okay. I just want these these like '80s directors to work through some of their trauma. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> That's what they're doing. That's why we have these movies. <laughs> Ironically, I don't think Cameron had gotten divorced yet um, when yeah. this movie was made. Uh, which would eventually happen a couple times. Yeah. Uh, anyways, good times. Um, what's with that one Navy SEAL who's super on board with his commanding officer's Kurt's impression? Like, you know I what I'm talking know. about? There's the, yeah. the one guy who's, and he does he does have a moment where he's like, hey, you should get some sleep. But then me, <laughs> but then B does this like wide-eyed, like, <laughs> we have like, to do yeah, like literally, literally like the most insane-looking <laughs> anyone has ever looked in history is like, we have to do this. Like, it's us against the world now. And this guy is just like, okay, I, you know, sounds good to me. You, you I, sold was, me on it, chief. One of my like, straight mm-hmm. thoughts that I deleted was definitively, like, that guy moves off of his, like, this dude's going crazy platform way too quickly. Real <laughs> like, quick. He yeah, like, he's just... I'm worried about you. Ah, not anymore. Now that you no, responded no, you to know me what? This makes like sense. a crazed lunatic. <laughs> I don't think that guy ever, like, comes around, too, right? They, like, tie yeah. him down, and, and yeah. he's just, He was I on guess... board the bean train all the way to the end. God bless him. <laughs> all the way to the end. 
You know what? Charismatic I'm, leadership I'm, I'm is dangerous. I was gonna say I'm reversing my take. Maybe he's just a really loyal guy. Like he's just yeah. He's really in it for the long haul. I respect that. Should have should have uh, been married. Would have seen the wisdom. <laughs> Jesus, what do you got? Oh, Lindsay telling Hippie to stay off of her side because it weakens her argument feels so funny. unbelievably relatable to me. Yeah, like yeah. there are so many times, especially like on the internet, where I'm like, mm, please stop. Please don't. Please don't support like, me on this one. Yeah. No. Please don't support me. Don't on this like one. that. Am I wrong? <laughs> uh, Mike, is this prime Michael Bean? Does it ever get better? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know if I can make that call, but it is okay. one of my favorite roles that he does. If you had to take one performance for the, and that's the only Michael Bean performance you can watch the rest of your life, I think this is like in the top too like it's this yeah. or aliens probably and aliens he's could, not doing so much you could throw in tombstone i think but i kind of forgot um, about tombstone and that's ooh, ooh, it's good he's good in that but if i could take three yeah, performances up there. yeah yeah it is up, up there. there though it's way up there. i think it's i think it's better than aliens because he has more to do personally yeah i agree with that aliens he's kind of yeah. just the good guy but he does yeah. it really well but yeah, we gotta do Tombstone. We have to do Tombstone just because of Val Kilmer and Michael Bean. Uh, I completely like, agree. Only those two actors. Yeah, I completely agree. That movie is so flawed, but I love them so much. They're so good. It's crazy. Yeah. All right, what do you got? Uh, I think this is the last one, one, right? I have two more. Uh, right. One of my least favorite nitpicks in action movies is when trained, I've done this my whole life, killers don't know the difference between a loaded and unloaded gun that they're holding. Um, and in this case, Michael Bean doesn't know that doesn't have a clip at all, which is yeah. so unbelievably stupid. And it's something that Taken nails. And I, I like I actively caught it watching this movie where I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like you don't he didn't think, realize uh, there wasn't a clip in his gun. <laughs> it's funny because I had a, I had a deleted thought that like I think it's crazy that that good seal didn't bother to tell Ed Harris about that before he went over there. Like, hey, by the yeah, way, if you have the guys, I took the thing. Like that's a little weird. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's all strange. I actually can accept. Well, maybe I don't know. I, I think like like Bean is so crazy by that point. Like I sure. almost took it as a side of that. Like he's so crazy he doesn't even realize. But I admit when I say it that that's a little bit of a stretch. So you know. Um, but I can accept that. I'm on board, and I agree with you that I always you think point that, at I no always point I'm like what? in his silent brooding he wasn't fiddling with that gun. Yeah, that's uh, that's tough. That's tough when when you wonder when you word it that way. Um, how long are we giving the renewed Elizabeth Bud relationship? Oh, no time at all. Wow. No time at all. I almost was asking it just because I expected your answer to be cynical, but but re- you don't think you don't think it's going like a week. You don't think they're even like you think like fifteen minutes after they hug at the end of the movie, they're like you know Virgil's like hey so. When do you want to have the wedding? And she's like, ooh. I think, I think literally she's like, I thought you would be dead. I regret all of this. Um, no, but uh, I think um, in reality, she gets super engrossed with like, you know, working with aliens that have just shown up for the first time. And that he's just true. like, but what about our marriage? Uh, and then like, you know, it ends. Yeah. I want to see that. I want to see the like gritty drama at Harris, like 20 years later. Marriage story. Him. Yeah. But it's set in this weird sci-fi world because the alien technology is like, you know, overrun. It's just, uh, it's just her. <laughs> it's just her. I'd watch it. It'd be great. Uh, that's all I got. What do you got? Last one. Yeah. John, 
Worst hang, Lewin Davis or James Cameron? Go. Ah, <laughs> oh. oh. I, I, I can't believe I didn't see it coming. I can't believe it. I mean, this one's easy. I, I, I would, I would unironically hang out with James Cameron. Like, I know it wouldn't make sense. I know that, like, at some point he would just do be like and be like a jerk and like yell at me or something would go weird. Which, but... which hang do you think you're more likely to die during? Baron Harkonnen or James Cameron? <laughs> that's a good one that's a good one i mean if we're on a film set it's like 50, well 50. you know i almost drowned a couple times but whatever like you know it's just part of the part of the experience honestly <laughs> uh, no other stray thoughts we're good that's it all right we'll stick around after the break we're gonna get to some of our essays for this Everybody. Welcome back. In this part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared some essays kind of going into greater depth of some aspect of this film. Uh, Mike, I think I'm going first, if that's okay. Yes, sir. Imagine you say no one time. Like, you've never done it, but just just imagine. Go to hell. I'm crazy. going first. I'm going first. I'm taking control of this podcast. I'm the captain right, now. Okay. Here we go. One week prior to us recording this episode, at the end of February 2022, the Milan Fashion Week took place in Milan, Italy. I know this only because it came up in a news feed I follow on Instagram. Otherwise, at no point in my life do I generally find myself interacting with the world of high fashion. That makes sense for me as a not fashionable or even particularly stylish person, but I tend to perceive that peculiar ambivalence and even hostility permeates most normal people's perception of the high fashion world. And it's not hard to understand why. Take a look at the runway models for high fashion and almost anyone will find themselves shocked by the ridiculousness and outlandishness of the designs. Just poking around some articles about the takeaways from this year's fashion week and I find models in cat suits, basically exactly what you think quote-unquote popcorn textured blouses, quote-unquote slinky string dresses, again, exactly what you think, and lacy bomber jackets decorated with mounds of green texture that I honestly couldn't easily describe in words. To be clear, I also see plenty of fashion trends that seem at least vaguely closer to reasonable styles that a normal person might wear, but all the same, the craziness on display does make one wonder. Is high fashion just ridiculous, out-of-touch rich people one-upping each other in outlandish and ridiculous styles and sensibilities. I'll be honest, I used to think pretty much exactly that way. Until one day, I read online an alternative explanation for how high fashion works. Essentially, the way this person described it, high-end designers are perfectly aware they are not making clothes that will be worn by an average, even stylish person when they are designing their flagship pieces for new lines for fashion shows. But that doesn't mean they're making designs exclusively for the crazy fashion world. They know that the design overtones they use will trickle down through the clothing industry, becoming more simple and pragmatic as they pass from runway models to celebrities to high society to the middle class and then to the entire world. In other words, while you may not see a popcorn textured blouse in the wild anytime soon, that exaggerated idea in a less radical, more palatable form may end up making its way through culture, 
and in fact influencing fashion and style which you do interact with in your everyday life. And I find this idea fascinating because it reveals a little bit about the creative process of certain individual creatives and because I think it has an interesting analog in the world of artists and storytellers. Often a story in film, games, or literature will depict a narrative of exaggerated extremes with the author fully aware that their themes will become diluted as they trickle down into culture, leaving the viewer, hopefully, with an idea or viewpoint that they may not have arrived at otherwise. And this brings us to James Cameron, arguably among the most successful and influential creatives and storytellers of the last 50 years. Despite his success, and despite my love of his work, I've always struggled to reconcile Cameron's populist filmmaking skill with his writing and dialogue. Characters in his movies trend towards preachiness and soapboxing, often making it painfully obvious what lesson Cameron dearly wants us, his viewers, to learn about. It pains me to say it, but Avatar is quite possibly the nadir of Cameron's struggle between those two instincts. It represents truly visionary and inspired filmmaking, creating scenes and visuals which enrapture the entire world. At the same time, the message of Avatar arguably totally failed to connect with people. Like a magician who accidentally shows their hand, almost anyone you talk to about Avatar's message and themes will say that it was almost unbearably over the top. All but flashing in large neon lights, nature is good, technology is bad. But lest you think that Cameron was after a fool's errand with Avatar, I believe by the time he made that movie, he had already hit the apex of this kind of populist filmmaking with Titanic. With that film, Cameron had set out to tell a tragic love story explicitly so he could cause a large group of viewers to personally connect with the tragedy of the Titanic's sinking. Love it or hate it, I think it's inarguable that he wildly succeeded at this goal. Months after release, people were still lining up to sit through that three-hour tragic epic, explicitly to feel the weight of the emotional tragedy. I read someone once who described Titanic's release as a kind of mass exercise in public mourning. And again, if we return to the world of high fashion, we see what I think are the same principles at work. Cameron's Titanic seems over-the-top and exaggerated because he knows that by the time the movie's impact on culture sets in, it will have diluted into a more nuanced, low-key, emotional understanding of the film's subject. And with all of this in mind, 1989's The Abyss, arguably Cameron's visual masterpiece, sits in an awkward space in his canon. You can tell that his ambition is there, that same impulse which would show up again and again in his work to communicate some grandiose idea about humanity and our collective existence. But unlike later movies, even Avatar, it's so heavy-handed in the abyss that, to me, it translates as slightly ridiculous. Near the end of the film, when Bud is transmitting the NTI's warning to humanity as the rig's crew read the words out loud, it's tough to escape the feeling that Cameron is pontificating right at my face, mindlessly hammering me with the message, war is bad, fighting is bad, don't fight each other or humanity will come to disaster. I find myself thinking, thank you, Mr. Cameron, I get it. 
That's probably always been my response to the thematic messaging in this movie. And while I would still stand by the idea that it's not an entirely successful attempt, I do think on this viewing I was able to see the way Cameron was developing his understanding of thematic resonance in a way that would prove so successful later in his career. And in that sense, returning once more to the idea of high fashion, I don't think Cameron's problem here was that he was too over the top. Again, when you think of Titanic, Jack and Rose's failed relationship standing in for the tragedy of the ship is almost over-theatrical in its presentation, but that's precisely why it works so well. If the Abyss fails to land its big, humanity-inspired message with regular people, I think it's not so much because that message is over the top, as it is because that message is not woven throughout the story in a coherent way. The problem, as Mike and I have discussed a little bit, was exacerbated by the theatrical cut, but even in the extended cut, those last scenes still feel like they come out of nowhere. And while, if I think about it, I can connect certain pivotal scenes in the emotional arc of the movie, particularly Bud and Elizabeth's relationship, with that overarching theme of coming together, of humanity having to unite, it's not an intuitive connection. It requires kind of a leap of faith on my part, doing some extra work in order to bring all of those plot points into alignment. So, strangely, my diagnosis of what went wrong with the messaging of the Abyss is not that it was too over the top, but that it was in a sense too hidden, or perhaps it was too isolated from the rest of the movie. In an ideal version of the film, maybe one that Cameron would have made if he had made this movie later in his career, I think he would have woven that theme of humanity's inability to stop fighting even deeper into the movie's narrative baking it into our characters and their arcs so explicitly and so deeply that to go on the journey with the characters would also be to go on the journey with Cameron's thematic ideas. In other words, the best version of James Cameron would have spelled out those large abstract themes so clearly and consistently throughout the movie, would have exaggerated them to such an effect that any person watching the movie would have felt some tinge of that emotional resonance as they walked out of the theater. The Abyss remains one of my favorite James Cameron movies, and even if it's not necessarily his most successful, critically, commercially, or thematically, I still find it fascinating to see the early attempts of that ambitious creative style, the first thoughts that he could influence how people think about the world by handing them a emotionally resonant narrative. In a sense, I think that's what's great about all stories and storytelling. And it's a skill Cameron would eventually take further than almost any other popular storyteller alive. War! Ugh! What is it good for? Nothing! Mike, is it possible? <laughs> Mike, I, I kind of think after this movie that Cameron thinks war is bad. I don't know I don't if you got that. I'm not sure I don't you know where I'm getting that, that from. What up? So oh. I, I don't know if I necessarily articulate that perfectly, but do you kind of see where I'm going for that? I, I'm just really interested in this idea that like, you know, C Cameron on the one hand, obviously paints in very exaggerated tones sometimes, sure. especially thematically, but I don't think that's actually a bad thing. And, and if you think about the abyss again, like I almost think the problem is that he doesn't, paint the entire story in those tones to the yeah. same degree that he does later. Absolutely. Right? Where it feels like it should be permeating the story from top to bottom. 
Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or, or if, if, you know, you agree or disagree or, or anything on that. No, I, I think I agree because, you know, we talked about this with uh, Spielberg with E.T. where yeah. there is a an art and it's easy to be critical about, about if you're snobby. Uh, but there is a I think we think a a valuable skill, which is making us know what you want us to feel or think in yeah. some ways. And obviously we love movies that leave that to us too, to wrestle with. But I think we equally love the blockbuster pop culture movies that, that do have a, a coherence throughout that is clear and that is accessible. And I think your point is well taken in the sense of you don't, what you don't want from either of the more subtle films or the more overt moral tales is to get to the end and you get told the morality of it. And you're like, where did that come from? Right. Um, It should be, it should be more of a, all the pieces coming together to see the larger message moment rather than being like, this is a good message that I I did not get from your um, weird morality play about divorce and the importance of saving (laughs) your wedding ring. Um, I I kid, but you get what I'm saying. You you don't want, you don't want to be heavy handed and then also leave the audience feeling blindsided by the the uh, moral message of your film. And yeah. and I'm not saying he doesn't touch on it throughout, but I think you're absolutely right in, in pointing out that this movie falls short of that. Like, if you want that threat of World War to be a, like, critical part of your conclusion, you need it referenced multiple times through the movie. You need it to be a thread. Yeah that is being wound around the thematic core that is being tugged on repeatedly and ultimately either snaps or gets untangled um, by the, the climactic arrival of the aliens. I mean, that that's, I, I guess I'm just agreeing with you. I don't want to repeat your monologue, um, but he doesn't quite find that in this film. And that's interesting. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting. He doesn't even quite find that in the director's cut. Um, yeah. So it's not it's even closer, that it would, but it's, it is. Yeah. yeah but, but it's not fully yeah. there. You know what I mean? Um, so I do think this is just a learning moment in a lot of ways as he gets closer and closer to what you're talking about. Fascinating movie to compare to T2. Like the moral lessons of T2 are so unbelievably clear and embedded in every line of dialogue in that movie. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And again, it might be T2 is an interesting one because I I do think Titanic is the apex of this uh, approach. Uh, but having said that T2 is pretty fascinating to consider because, you know, it is, again, it's hyper populist, right? It is yeah. meant to be, it is meant to be and succeeds at being amenable to everyone. And as much as there are a lot of people who could leave being like, wow, that movie was so obvious with what it was trying to tell me. I think like, again, that's the key with this kind of filmmaking and, and getting back to that fashion metaphor is it's like, sometimes you have to paint in those very broad strokes in order for this to land on some level with nearly everyone. Right. Yeah. And, and nearly everyone walks away like, okay, I get Even if they don't realize it, I get some aspect of what he was trying to convey of the emotional journey he was trying to convey. Um, And again, that's just what makes this movie fascinating to me because it's like, it's like he didn't yet know to go just a little bit, he, he, I almost want to say he needed to either go way further yeah, or yeah. not as far at all. Or like the opposite, make it way more nuanced. It sits in this strange middle ground that 
uh, which is why, again, I see it as a stepping stone sort of well, <laughs> for, for later, you know, success. Hang, hang with me on this. It's, it's going to seem yeah. tangential, but it, it's really funny thinking about that in the context of like truth telling and count, getting counsel. You know, the most mm-hmm. effective form of counseling is when you are led to conclusions that you come to yourself, but like the counselor is directing that inquiry. So though you yeah. make you make the discovery, or at least you think you do, um, it's it's your work, or it feels like you're the one doing the work, but you're being guided to it, right? And that's one hand. Yeah. But then there are also moments, like some of the most proud moments of my life, you can't do this all the time because you'll just tune people out. But it's when someone just, just like tells me the way it is about like what they see yeah. in my life. And that, that can be really effective when done well, right? It can just yeah, be like blunt, absolutely. straightforward. This is how you're jacked up. This is how you need to fix it. Um, but I, I like that comparison, even if it's tangential, because anywhere in the middle doesn't really work for me, at least what I've experienced yeah. in my life. Where someone's like trying to guide me or be subliminal about it, but then they're also still being too forward. I end up just being like, you know, F off a little bit, right? Because yeah, it just kind of feels manipulative and, and poorly handled on a, a sensitive conversation. Um, yeah. So obviously not one-to-one, but I think that's kind of the same concept where it's like, you got to go one way or the other. Either you are luring me into a reflection and, and prodding me in a direction, but you're letting me form my conclusions or you're telling me. And I appreciate yeah. both done well, but I really, I, I catch on to the game when you go down the middle in a way that is distracting and ultimately kind of frustrating. One of the neat things that comes with having a kid is the opportunity to return to beloved content that you haven't engaged with in a long, long time. Now, disclaimer, most often, you actually just find yourself watching garbage trucks that talk or evil men singing catchy, vapid songs about construction vehicles that get stuck in your head and only exist to make your kid want to buy more stuff. But sometimes there are these awesome moments where in seeking out educational, child-friendly content, you just magically recall a program you enjoyed from the past and you discover that your kid actually likes watching it too. And voila! These moments are wonderful. Suddenly you get to return to something you haven't watched in years. And in the best occasions, you end up finding it just as enjoyable as you did then. And it's just a blast from the past. For me, the best example of this so far in my parenting has been Planet Earth, which enraptured me when I first saw it. And blessedly, I have discovered that my daughter loves it too. At least when she actually sits down long enough to watch any amount of it. Now, why we love it is quite different. She simply enjoys watching elephants, lions, tigers, oh my, while I love it because perhaps more than any nature show I've seen, Planet Earth succeeds at inviting me into environments of this world that I've never actually really considered in any detail. Space is wildly strange when compared to the habitats in which I've lived and explored. And in doing so, the show has this unique ability to grab my imagination and ultimately to elicit this really rabid curiosity, to create within me this almost overwhelming sense that my rock home in space that I call Earth is actually far stranger than I often tend to believe. To put it differently, planet Earth uniquely pushes me into realizing that the more I explore this world of mine, 
the more I'm forced to accept how incredibly alien it actually is. That I live on a planet that's often truly stranger than fiction. It has goats that live on the face of sheer cliffs, fungi that parasitically eat the brains of ants to grow beautiful flowers, entire ecosystems that flip from deserts to grasslands across seasons of a single year. And the list goes on and on. I just love the show. I mean, I love it. I love that it's able to create these feelings of bewilderment and curiosity about my home. A desire to explore this place that I often take for granted. To realize that it's largely alien territory from my point of view. Which may all seem like a tangent, but I've actually always believed that it's this sensation which drove James Cameron to make The Abyss. This intense curiosity driving him to obsessively explore a part of this earth that clearly felt alien and strange and bewildering to him. That is obviously the deep sea. I believe it's that same curiosity, as well as the obsession to explore that births from it, which is what makes this environment so effective as a setting for this sci-fi epic. On the surface, Setting a movie about encountering something in the ocean seems like a strange choice. It's more likely that you would make a drama or a horror film like Jaws. Because most science fiction stories are set in space or amongst distant stars for a reason. Simply put, they're easy backdrops that are quite frankly ready-made for setting up the anxieties, emotions, and themes that defy the sci-fi genre. In fact, in many ways, setting a sci-fi movie on Earth without some strange apocalyptic backdrop or a landscape that incites the imagination to think of alien places creates a lot of inherent challenges. I mean, think most often, it demands a hyper-focus on the strangeness of the aliens themselves, like we see in Arrival. That you have to focus on these alien beings intensely to create sensations like awe, wonder, terror, and uncertainty because obviously the audience by their own devices won't get that inherently from looking at environments that they think they know, environments on earth that they assume they're accustomed to. And yet what's stunning about the abyss is that the ocean in Cameron's deft hands becomes a setting that proves to be just as effective at creating such sensations as any film from the genre that depicts humanity's future journeys into the unknown of deep space. It takes this known environment and makes it the same kind of fertile ground for some of the most important thoughts and tools of the memorable classics of science fiction. I think even more astounding is how despite the Abyss's normal sci-fi features, it's actually its earthbound element of the ocean that proves most effective at eliciting those sensations that are critical to effective science fiction. I mean, it's just amazing that he makes this wonderful central choice to set his epic in this massive environment of our world that we assume we know, only to then prove to us that once explored, it's actually revealed to be just as alien as any extraterrestrial could be. I mean, for me, this is the crowning achievement of the movie. How Cameron produces that bewilderment, curiosity, and sense of alienness necessary for good science fiction all by exploring something that is essentially in our own backyard. All by exploring our ocean. Making a trip into the setting that we think we know in our world feel like an exploration of distant stars. 
Cameron seemingly effortlessly creates the emotions and thematic resonances of those classics through a trip into something that I have played in as a child, which is a feat when you really consider it. And the results are obviously brilliant. In his hands, the ocean becomes a place of mystery, a world full of unknown possibilities whose exploration feels like an adventure into a setting that's just as terrifyingly unknowable, unpredictable, and expectation-shattering as any of those utter backdrops of some of the most classic films. One that's simultaneously as vast and claustrophobic as any craft-bound journey into the cosmos. One that feels just as viscerally dangerous and unsettling as any quest gone wrong in the empty void of space. Cameron masterfully creates the same feelings about this pocket of our world that we discover through any eerie trip amongst the cosmos, all elicited through small and large engagements with our ocean's actual strangeness. A ship violently sinking, and yet its deadly plunge is shrouded in complete silence of a watery void rather than the explosive noise that we'd expect. Through placing his camera in a character's mask, as they're trapped underwater. Through the horrifying silence of a drowning man's screams, the moments where utter darkness is filled with alien ambient light. He employs classic tools of the genre and creates the sensations that fuel it and make it so effective. All by simply depicting this environment we assume we know and in doing so, forcing us into a confrontation with the realization of how little we actually know it at all. And in doing so, our backyard opens up an exploration of some of the most engrossing questions of the genre. The dynamic between what goes on above and its impact below raises the same questions about humanity as any journey amongst the stars in the dead of space. The contrast between the humans in their seemingly safe ship and what lurks outside raises the same reflections on our competing duality, day and night, life and death, certainty and discovery. The very environment fuels the existential reflections on the tug of war between humanity's innate drives of selfishness and self-sacrifice, survival and self-destruction, tribalism, war and annihilation, massive themes engaged through a small story set in a revelatory alien environment that creates pressure for humans navigating fierce unknown settings and ultimately makes them respond to reveal what their humanity even is. Such things have always been the fertile ground of great science fiction, but in its best moments, it's what the abyss captures so purely by diving deep into the waters of Earth and our human condition simultaneously. And honestly, I don't have a place to land really on what to do with all of that. Other than to say that Cameron's ability to do this in the abyss stuns me every time I watch it. And I'm simply grateful that he took the creative measures to make sure this movie exists. Each time I see it, I find myself relating to Cameron's rabid curiosity and his willingness to obsessively mine this environment's death. I relate to the impulse to creatively take what's effective about a story and with this playful willingness, apply it to new spaces and settings that thrill him personally, that scratch the itch of his own curiosity. But more than anything, like after watching Planet Earth, I'm always left reflecting at least a little bit on how strange our world actually is and how important it is to engage it with a posture of mystery. 
to see Earth as the alien terrain that it is in reality, and to recognize it as this place that's stranger than fiction, and one that's fully capable of producing awe, wonder, bewilderment, and a drive for discovery, so long as I'm willing to engage it with curiosity and that nonstop desire to explore more. Yeah, but like a city is way cooler to to walk around in. (laughs) Nature is pretty overrated. A lot more death. Not enough blue people in the ocean. I've always said it. I've always said it. Uh, No, I I honestly probably won't have that much to add other than that I I completely agree. As much as I started this episode by pointing out that there's a sense to which the ocean is my actual nightmare and, and is absolutely something I am genuinely afraid of. Um, it's also something that I'm incredibly fascinated by. And I think it's the closest I get to that sensation. A lot of people describe of being horrified by something and equally like intrigued by it, you know? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the thing that Cameron seizes on in this movie and that you alluded to, or you talked about explicitly is that there's a certain, there's a mysteriousness to it. Right. And, and there's, there's, there's this sense of, you know, it's it's on our planet and it's right there, but it's so it's such a foreign environment to us. In, in yeah. a weird way, it feels like we know more about like near Earth space, right, than we do about about the ocean. And, and that there's, and it's almost easier to get into space than to get into the very bottom depths of the ocean. Um, and so it's it's something that I think I, I totally agree with you that there's something so magical about capturing that that space. Um, I, I already said this point in the podcast, so we don't have to dwell on this, but it does make me again, wonder why this hasn't been mined further, mm. you know, why, yeah. why in, in the realm of science fiction and genre fiction and video games and just all these different spaces, I just think this is such a, such a prime place for interesting material. I think on the one hand, some aspect of that is because it's kind of, it's a kind of a traditional topic. If you think about, you know, ancient people's talking about the sea and these mythic overtones and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, and um, so part of that makes sense to me, but I don't know. I, I always am sad that there's not more stories explicitly set the way that this movie is set in, in this kind of environment. I can't think of any other stories that draw such a, such a direct line between like aliens and deep water. Right. I, sure. I think that it, it's, it is fascinating that he, makes that connection um which I, I think for the reasons you stated is is, is just right there you know um but yeah I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that or anything that you're interested in hearing more about but but yeah i, I do i also really seize upon that with this movie and, and is a huge part of why this movie is so successful to me i totally agree yeah i, I think i don't know, i mean ditto to what you said i, I do i I was thinking as I watched it this time with a little bit of curiosity myself at why there aren't more successful attempts to do this same general kind of genre flip, but in other uninhabitable, uninhabitable spaces. So like deserts or the Arctic or, you know, tundras. And I kind of actually found myself being like, 
I wonder if the answer is simply that other directors don't have the obsessed curiosity to mm. learn about those spaces and to commit to depicting those spaces like truly to the same degree yeah. that Cameron does. Like, I, I don't know if we can overstate that a lot of the effectiveness of him using this setting is that he's fascinated by it and he's obsessed with it. Yeah. As you see with the Titanic, it's it's almost too obvious to state. But this is something that enthralls him to the point that he's insistent upon doing it as masterfully as possible. And obviously maybe one of the reasons people don't set movies in these uninhabitable spaces is because they're uninhabitable. So like um, shooting a film in them is probably really hard, but it it makes me respect his craft more. And like you're saying, maybe if it's not even just the ocean, it just, it, it does make me wish more people would be bold enough to spend exorbitant amounts of money to shoot a genre (laughs) flick in a setting that's like brutal, you know, that actually can create those same sensations of the void of space. But, but in these other environments that would be just as strange to us if we actually spent time in them. Yeah, I totally agree. It's funny because the, the one name that did come to my mind and I have extremely mixed feelings about this director, but it's even interesting to compare them because the the one name that came to mind is actually Ron Howard. Mm. Um, just from the perspective of he he's a little scattershot, but but chases things that he's just genuinely extremely interested. In. So yeah, he's yeah. you know he he suddenly is like man, I just really got into racing, and he makes Rush right, and yeah, I really got into I don't know firefighting, and I made the, the stupid firefighting movie. Whatever, it mostly holds. I, I think that the apex of Ron Howard is the best example of this, which is Apollo 13. Um, but even within that movie, it's it's kind of funny to consider because it came to my mind because I was like, oh, they, they went to pretty extreme lengths to film that. They, they actually shot a lot of the, uh, a lot of the spaceship scenes in the Vomit Comet plane. So they built a set in a plane that would do dives for 30 seconds. And in those 30 seconds, they're in weightlessness. And they can shoot thirty seconds at a time to get these shots of like the the you know people in the in the spaceship um, or in the Apollo mission. What's so funny to me though, if you compare that to a movie like this, is that I think Cameron has is invested in rendering into you the emotional state that your characters are in very vividly, right? Yeah, so it's not yeah. enough for him to just show you like an underwater station he has to make you feel the claustrophobia and the pressing in and the alienness of all of that i think you know that's not necessarily his goal in the movie but it's funny how ron howard in apollo 13 is depicting a claustrophobic you know um uh, uh ship in the middle of like the most destitute environment known to man but at no point does it feel like that. It maybe yeah. even looks like really cool because it's weightless. But again, you don't connect with that emotional part of the journey. Um, so I think it's kind of both sides, right? It's like Cameron, it's not only that he's going to go to these crazy obsessive, excuse me, obsessive lengths with depicting these different kind of environments or different situations, but it's also that he desperately wants you to emotionally feel the way you would feel in those situations. And, and he's really good at doing that. Um, so I think it's all those things together are, are why it's, you, you just don't see other people doing this. And on the one hand, it's a little bit like, oh, I'm sad. I wish we had more of this. But on the other hand, it's like, that's what makes him 
a particularly interesting director and that's that's the that's the thing he does that you know as much as we fault him for writing or for dialogue or all the stuff it's like yeah no one else really makes a movie quite like that though and that is pretty cool i think guys as always thank you so much for listening uh mike and i do have a final question for each other before we get to that i want to let you know on the next episode we are going to be discussing parasite the 2019 south korean wikipedia says black comedy thriller film is that accurate mike uh i think that's kind of accurate a lot of things it's funny it's thrilling it's dark uh death to capitalism yeah one of the best transitions from like my essay comedy to will, like terror my essay will like literally just be a reading of the communist manifesto so okay that's we we've all been waiting for it every episode i just i'm just waiting for you to to finally break it out so it's good to know uh so if you haven't seen that high recommendation to watch that um final question mike yeah you're on the beach with your family it's Ooh. a beautiful summer day oh nice uh out of nowhere, a mile-high wave forms uh, and is ready to engulf all of everything you've ever known and loved on the entire planet Earth, and then inexplicably fades away. I'm just curious, what do you think your reaction would be? What, what, how, how do you think you're, you're responding to that, that situation coming about? So, in the best film that James Cameron mm. has ever had a part on, uh, he was the executive mm-hmm. producer of Point Break, um that film is is that true yeah yeah his wife made it uh catherine bigelow at the time um the film ends with uh you know keanu reeves and patrick swayze uh at the the arrival of the perfect storm it's the 100 year storm and there's these massive waves you know and he's like got swayze captured and then swayze Mm -hmm. you know it's just like i gotta ride one last wave you know and uh (laughs) And Keanu lets him go, and and he goes he goes paddling out into the ocean to ride the wave, and and we all know that he's not he's not going to make it back. He's it's a suicide mission, and uh, you know the police are like, "You let him go, we'll get him when he comes back in." And then Keanu's like, "He ain't coming back," and throws his his badge into the ocean and walks away. Um, and that's is this that's, true? Yeah. I haven't seen this movie. Yeah, we're gonna do pipe break one time. It's gonna be a beggar. Um, we're never gonna do pipe break. But um. That's what I would. That's what I would start. That's doing. what you would do. Literally, yeah, I yeah. would like expect Audi to be the the Keanu Reeves of this, and I'd be like, uh, I was ready about to, to ask there. who Keanu Reeves. So, so Keanu Reeves is your two year old daughter. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, and then the yeah. wave would dissipate, and my wife would be like, "What the hell were you about to go swim out <laughs> to that?" And I would just like, you know, have to talk my way like, out I of just, that. I one gotta go. And have to yeah. explain my way out of it. So that's about it's right. It's good to know. And just to clarify, because in a sense, you're giving a lot of credence to Cameron's vision. You wouldn't celebrate or anything. Obviously. No, like, I'd be ready be... to embrace. I would stare. I would quote Nietzsche and stare into the abyss. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, when they say with with uh, like, you know, up and coming basketball stars and stuff. It's like act like you've been there before. Yeah. 100%. You're kind of taking the, you're kind of taking the perspective of like, let's not make a big deal about this. Right. <laughs> let's not. 
let's not go crazy with this. Like, whatever. We survived the the, the impending apocalypse. Uh, Don't make Adi a big thing about it. starts crying, and okay? I'm like, act like you've been there before, kid. Act like you've been here before, kid. <laughs> like, seriously. Like, buck up a little bit. Oh, okay, good to know. Good times. Good times. Yeah. Well, what'd you do? Would you just cry? Uh, I kind of feel like I'd want food. And I and like I think I'm saying that because I'm Walk really hungry right truck. now at this moment. <laughs> but like in in that same way that like I maybe this is just me, but when I'm hungry I just can't like everything I'm watching, I'll be watching like a horror movie and if I'm hungry I'm like, man, that that sandwich that guy's eating looks really good. Like I can go for that. Um I'm a simple man, Mike. So yeah, I think that you're asking me right now and my answer is like I kind of feel like I'd be like Man, life is good. We're alive. Let's eat. Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's be merry a little bit. You know, I go go get a hot dog or something. I feel like you'd be one of those people being interviewed. That just sounds like an idiot. But <laughs> that just sounds like a total idiot. <laughs> what do you think yeah, about you know, this uh, near apocalyptic? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's a great good time to, to eat. <laughs> it's great to feel like you know. At times like this, it's good just to get a nice home cooked meal. That's what the character <laughs> would say. That's what the character would say in the movie if they have if they had interviewed anyone. 100%. I'm for it. Uh Mike, what do you got? Uh so John, you are I think we everyone knows now the the biggest James Cameron fan in the world. Um I think <laughs> My from, essay kind of ended with like a, a almost like an apologistic like defense of of Cameron. So I can't I can't disagree unfortunately yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan yeah and yeah. i think you know i'm speaking for our listeners when i say that mm-hmm. a lot of us feel it's reached a point where your loyalty to him is largely sociopathic um sure and we are sure. worried yeah. but i have a two-part question based on the revelations of this film and the corresponding documentary um especially when it comes to just how off the wall insane you know the making of this movie was for the people working under cameron um mm, first mm. first part is there anything you wouldn't do if james cameron asked you to intensely in the context of a movie yeah no okay second question <laughs> i think because here's the thing is like in the the guy i'm in the context of a movie so i'm not saying i'm i'm going to him for like life coaching but he obviously no one's ever gotten even seriously injured like it is just a quick note it is seriously incredible that no one's ever gotten seriously injured on a so James you're Cameron saying film set when he's getting ready and, to pour water into your suit and he's like you're just yeah. gonna have to hold your breath for a while while we drag hey, you across the set hey. with a chain you're like yeah okay that, that checks out hey you know what ed harris has had a pretty good career so okay. apparently so, it's apparently it's a good call yeah you're stepping on the second question which is would yeah. you have been able to forgive your Lord and Savior, George James Cameron, if he had committed the ultimate sin of actually murdering Ed Harris? <laughs> um, if the final movie was only as good as the abyss that we have is, then no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a world. You know what? I'm just saying. Hey, if anyone's listening, uh, this is a bit. Eggs to make yeah. an omelet. I I want to get out ahead of this joke and just say this is a joke. I don't think anyone should die for a movie, obviously. But I'm just saying that like, there's a good and there's a version of this movie that's good enough. That's like you know I don't know maybe it changes the maybe it changes the world a little bit maybe maybe war a, ends yeah fair maybe war maybe war ends and 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 uh, that's. 
you know, sometimes you gotta crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Again, um, uh, listeners of this yeah. podcast, John is very unwell. Um, he has. I, I truly, thought you were gonna say John is joking. Like, truly you, lost you're his doing mind. Me dirty like this. If you are concerned, listening to what he just said, you should be, and you should. If hey, you Mike, love him, hey, Mike, reach out and get him help. Hey, Mike. Uh, let me ask you a quick question. Yeah, what's up? Let's say that Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Is you're on set with him, and he's like, Mike, I'm gonna need you to get into the suit and get filled with water and get dragged along a cliff face. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know it sounds bad, but it's gonna be it's gonna be really critical to this movie. Are you in or out? Well, see, that's apples and oranges because Paul Thomas okay. Anderson is okay. a good director. Yep. yep, yep. Okay, just good to know. Just good to know <laughs> that we all have our blind spots. We all have, you know. Listen, he makes we, we good movies. It. It's different. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. You know, by the only objective measurement of success, uh, James Cameron makes the best movies in the world. So I'm You're talking about money. I'm, you know what? I'm. You're talking about what? wait. Is I'm, your metric money or number of times Ed Harris's life is put in peril? Obviously, number of times Ed Harris is almost killed. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for listening. This one went off the rails a little bit, but we hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you think of it, if you can think of anyone, we don't do any advertising for this show. If you can think of anyone you know who would enjoy this, who's a movie geek, who has a weird sense of humor, uh, we, you know, maybe shoot them an episode that you think they'd like to listen to. Uh, Mike, do you have any final thoughts on The Abyss? Rip Ed Harris, baby. Rip Ed Harris, man. What a. God, if Ed Harris dies in the next two weeks before we release this, we're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> you, you realize that? I'm be, not coming back, old. John. <laughs> uh, thank you all for listening. My name's Jonathan Devine. Viocadias! Yep. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next episode.